The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when the teen dream It Girl of 1995 is given her own production studio contract at the mere age of 18 to make a series of edgy rebel rom-coms? What happens when the monetary value of the contract is so exorbitant by then-actor salary standards that all of Hollywood loses their shit? And how does a romantic comedy featuring such an eclectic cast of Alicia Silverstone, Benicio Del Toro, Harry Connick Jr., and Christopher Walken manage to fade into audience obscurity but remain a monumental moment in industry history? Well, let's find out. Because today we are masochistically handcuffing ourselves to 1997's strange, forgotten, romantic flop excess baggage. So sit back and take note of all the exit points from the trunk of your car as we take a joyride through this tonal oddity of unexpectedly consequential cinema. Brought to you by the rebel yell of Alicia Silverstone's bright but brief career, the mumbling wonder of the Benicio syntax, the faux molestation meat cute, yellow pleather leather, and the arbitrator of love, Dave Matthews. And, of course, our safe words today are market value. Anything to add, Benji? You just stay away from me, London, or I might have to sick my bodyguard on you. Bodyguard. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! (laughs) Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver. Oh, hey, London. Yo, Benji. What's up? My name's Ben. Fuck off. Never. What are we doing for today? Well, London, that movie that you talked about in your intro where you said... You know, you well, you had some things to say in that intro that you definitely yeah, did not I didn't record. Edit it in later. No, <laughs> not at all. Said, I could not believe you went there though in your intro. I have to props to that. That is brave. Not many people will go there. You did. Mm-hmm. This movie is 1997's generally forgotten film, Excess Baggage. Yeah, forgotten by everybody but me. Yeah, I... <laughs> this movie grabbed a hold of me in 1997 and it wouldn't let go. Not always for the best reasons. You know what? If you're a young teenage white girl in 1997, I get it. I could see this movie taking hold. I think it was actually more the part of me that's a little bit sociopathic and weird with the romances that I want to see on screen. Because this romance... I said young teenage white girl and you said sociopath (laughs) and I'm hearing six half a dozen. uh, Yeah, all teens are sociopath. It's crazy. But... Yeah, this film is technically a romantic comedy. Sort of like Swiss Army Man was technically a romantic comedy. This is a little bit more in line with studio romances, except for it is one of the most problematic romantic pairings to grace romantic comedy screens. And I love that. It's just, there's not a lot of chemistry. So first of all, this is going to be not just a romantic comedy, but a romantic comedy 
with Alicia Silverstone and Benicio del Toro. I mean, we were we were waiting for it, folks. All the '90s were like, we need to see these two going at it, and thank God this movie came along. Yeah, I meant to look up the age difference between them. Do you remember when Benicio del Toro was born? Because I know. Silverstone um, was born in 76, I think. Yeah, well, Benicio has been 65 for the past 40 years, as far as That's I can fair. tell. So he was born in 1967, it looks like. Oh, okay. on February 19th. So the same day as my brother, different year, but okay. a February 19th there. There you go. And so that's about a nine-year difference between the two. So, yeah, about nine, ten. So that's actually less of a gap than it appears uh, on screen. Yeah. I mean, at one point in this movie, he asks her, how old are you? Twelve, she says <laughs> mockingly, and you just think, well, I mean... Well, she does have a car and a license, so we know she's at least 16, but she is still in boarding school, high school, so she's between the ages of 16 and 18, yeah. in theory. The actress herself is 18, and yeah, his response is just old enough. And I'm like, yeah, I've nice you. The lightning summary for this film. I, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary for whoa, this film. Whoa, whoa, that's too much, London. Wikipedia plot yeah. synopses, those are paragraphs of information. We don't have time for you to just read a whole long article. You would think. So the thing that Wouldn't I, though? I found hilarious is that the Wikipedia plot for this film is so short, especially compared to what Wikipedia usually has for plot synopses. And that plot reads... Emily Hope, Alicia Silverstone, stages her own kidnapping to get the attention of her father. She puts herself into the trunk of her own car, a BMW 850i, tapes her legs and mouth, handcuffs her hands, and calls the police so they can come, in quotations, rescue her. But then, unexpectedly, a car thief named Vincent Roche, Benicio del Toro, steals the car with her in it. Suddenly, Emily finds herself actually kidnapped. Only the kidnapper doesn't know what to do with her. Christopher Walken shows up as Emily's Uncle Ray, Jack Thompson as Emily's father, and Harry Connick Jr. as Greg, Vincent's car-stealing partner. And that's it. Okay, well, that's a plot synopsis of the first 15 minutes of this movie, but... And then I guess they just gave up. I, they're so. like, fuck it, no one cares. It's our calling, Benji. We gotta fix this we, summary. I, I think so. We're not going to. I know, but... probably not. <laughs> but, yeah... You know, it's too I perfect that, as it is. And that speaks to how, uh, you know, we like to do our obscure films on here. And this is not an obscurely produced film. This was a Hollywood movie. However, we don't want to term Hollywood movies or what have you. has, you know, big name people in it. So this isn't some unknown production. And yet, no one ever talks about this film. No one thinks about this film. I had never heard of this film, I think, until a few years ago when, you know, much like many obscure films I watch, you showed it to me. Yeah, because I'm like, hey, so there's this Benicio Del Toro, Alicia Silverstone rom-com from the late 90s that has Harry Connick Jr. and Christopher Walken in it. That's where I said, I don't believe you. Hour, 40 minutes later. Wow, that was a thing. So this film that only has a few sentence summary on Wikipedia because nobody even wanted to no finish filling out the plot summary. I'm like, all right, let's talk about this film for two plus hours. Let's do <laughs> As it. we do. You ready? <laughs> all right. So production on this film, where in the world did this strange film come from? Well, I'm glad you asked. I didn't ask. I'm glad you asked. I never ask. I never care. So... <laughs> 
The script for this movie was written by a female screenwriter, what? Max D. Adams. Yeah. Wait, wait. wait. <laughs> okay. Surprise. Um. <laughs> wow. There are elements to this movie that. Wow. A female. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So just hold on to that. Um, okay. So this was written by a female screenwriter, Max D. Adams, and it was the winner of the first annual Austin Film Festival screenplay competition where it was picked up by Barry Joseph when he was at Sony. And mm -hmm. then Alicia Silverstone gets involved in this project, as does Marco Brambilla, or Brambilla. Right. I think he pronounced the double L with the Y, so we're going to go with Marco Brambilla. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. It's going to be his second film after 1993's Demolition Man. The obvious follow-up. <laughs> yeah, the obvious follow-up to Demolition Man, <laughs> in which all restaurants are Taco Bell in the future. Demolition Man is a very important movie to me. Uh, but yeah, no. Yeah, he's going to do this movie four years later, so that was a little bit of a surprise. I hadn't ever really looked into who had directed this film, and I was like, really? Okay. And then we get Alicia Silverstone involved. This is where we're going to have to take a little bit of a, a scenic tour through Alicia Silverstone's <laughs> life and short career up until this movie. Take us there. Alicia Silverstone, she starts out as a model in California. She had a hot moment in The Wonder Years, just like... A couple of minutes of screen time where wow. she is the crush of the main dude in Wonder Years. And then she gets discovered for the movie The Crush, which I think was in 1992? Uh, 93. 93. 93. I looked, I looked okay. that up. I, I checked out a clip from that because it's a movie apparently based on a true story from the writer and director's life about a sure was. about this this writer who was just lodging with a family and their 14 year old daughter develops a crush on him and he's just like no what you're too young we can't do that it's some weird kind of reverse lolita stuff where you know, she's very predatory yeah. on him and you have carrie elways not really getting his american accent right just yet you know he improved that in later years, but back in 93, he was not. He yeah, know. and he's like, we can't do this. And she's like, okay, then, vengeance. And so <laughs> she turns the tables, she turns the tide. And it's a fun movie. I've actually seen that one quite a few times in my youth as well. The thing I enjoyed learning about that film is that when it was released, the uh, Alicia Silverstone's character was called Darian or Dorian or something like that. But the writer based this on a real event and he didn't change the name of the girl <laughs> so the woman that he based on sued him so in home video releases including the blu-ray that shout factory has put out the line is awkwardly dubbed over not with the original actors amazing i'll have yeah. to go back and check out because i do also have the crush on dvd well naturally you know but yeah i mean <laughs> humble brag of the episode like no big deal but i think i got it around the first release of the dvd so i wonder if it's pre or post dubbing i'll have to go check that out yeah i read that there are different home video versions of that you might have one of the like the original audio but the, i don't know it made it funny to me when i was watching uh. clips of it online have some sort of collectors <laughs> highly sought after by two people in the universe. We can't keep doing this, Olivia. Oh, her name changes to Olivia? It's, it changes yeah, okay, to so something I must else. have the Darian because in mine, her name is Darian. So. Okay, yeah. Cool. Look at All that. Right. Look at that hot item you've got in your, your DVD yeah. collection. Oh, man. Come at me. <laughs> All right, so... She's in this movie called The Crush with Carrie yes. Ulysses, mm -hmm. and she wins all of these awards for it. It's her breakout role, which leads 
Aerosmith, the band, to see her and say, you know what, that is some hot underage body action going uh, on right there. Oh. I'm going to cast her along with my daughter <laughs> in a series of three music videos. Well, the, okay, to be clear, Liv Tyler was only in one of these music videos, but the one that she's in, you do find yourself saying, dear God, Steven, that's your daughter. What are you doing? I mean, okay, you know what? Steven Tyler's all for sex positivity, even at his young teenage daughter. Fine, fine, okay. Yeah, fuck yeah. Good for you. So, we have her starring in the Aerosmith music videos Crying, Amazing, and Crazy from 93 to 94. Mm -hmm. Amy Heckerling sees these music videos and says, this is my girl to play Cher, because she's trying to cast the movie Clueless in 1995, and she can't find a Cher. And in these Aerosmith music videos is the inspiration. I guess it was the moment that she's hanging off of the overpass, thinking crying, flipping the camera off and <laughs> smiling a little bit. And yeah. Amy Heckerling's like, that's my share. So she gets really? her involved in this. Clueless <laughs> does an amazing job at the box office. Oh, yeah. And Huge. suddenly Alicia Silverstone is the new quote unquote it girl. And then something crazy happens. Columbia Pictures has this current head at the time named Mark Hanton, who offers Alicia Silverstone a $10 million deal to do a two-movie contract. And she's 18 at the time that she's offered this contract. And to sweeten the deal, he gives her her own production company along with it, which is something called First Kiss Productions, huh. which in Excess Baggage, when it opens up, we learn that this is brought to us by First Kiss Productions, okay. making Alicia Silverstone an official producer on this movie right. under her own production label. Well, all right. This is the only film that's going to be produced under First Kiss Productions. Really? Because this film is not going to do well. But they had high hopes at the time, which is why Mark Hanton offered her this $10 million deal. Now, why this $10 million deal was a huge deal is because... Five million a picture at the time in 1997 will make this chick, who has only done one hit movie, the highest paid actress ever in Hollywood. And yeah, that was pretty big. Five million for a female actor back in the day in, 90, in the mid 90s. That was kind of huge. There were male stars that were crossing that 10 million dollar, 15 million dollar, mm -hmm. uh, like 20 million. I think Jack Nicholson was the first guy to ever be paid 20 million dollars for a movie, I think, for Batman. And that became a crazy threshold for actors to get these super huge multi million dollar deals. And yeah, you take one look at like what their female counterparts were being paid and you can kind of see, oh, yeah, there's some discrepancy there with salaries. That's a little yeah, fucked up. Yeah, and there still is. If When I was looking at the current highest paid Hollywood actors, I mean, still, there's on occasion a mm -hmm. woman that will crack into the top 10. I think Scarlett Johansson for the Marvel movies mm -hmm. made it one year, but for the most part, no women appear on this list. Yeah. So that's still an issue, although at the time, yeah, Women were not getting paid this much at all, and Hollywood loses their shit over this deal. <laughs> this was my crazy deep dive of this particular film, the unexpected deep dive that I went down, which was looking up all of these old newspaper articles from 1997 that were just going crazy over this movie production deal. And one of the quotes that I found that one of the studio executives was quoted saying is, when I read that Alicia Silverstone was paid $5 million a picture, I said, this is crazy. 
What does that mean Meg Ryan gets for her next film? If Alicia Silverstone gets that much, Sandra Bullock should get 15 million. And this was said in a way of like, that'd be crazy, right? I mean, Sandra Bullock should get $15 million for whatever she does because she is fucking fantastic. Yeah, well, also, there's the discussion there. Within the salary range of Hollywood actors, yes, women should make as much as men. Should all of these actors be making as much as they do per film? That's a different discussion. (laughs) But yeah, now, just side note, Sandra Bullock did get paid 20 mil for Gravity and her total income because it was a contract for profits over time is now grossing about 70 million. Oh, nice. Good for her. Now... The idea that Sandra Bullock gets paid fifteen million a movie is actually pretty commonplace. Mm. But in nineteen ninety seven, that was like no, this, no. oh my God, what's gonna come next? And it's like, well, <laughs> this does come next. And why it comes next is because this movie right here set the bar for inflation among studio and Hollywood actor salaries. This and movie. out of all of the movies <laughs> this that movie. I expected to jumpstart <laughs> Actor salary inflation in Hollywood, excess baggage, this forgotten rom-com from 1997 with Alicia Silverstone was not what I saw coming. Bizarre. Ah, yeah. (laughs) Of all the things to take away from this movie, that this is the reason that female actors begin to get something somewhat similar to what their male counterparts were getting. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. It does seem as if the mid-90s were a time period where there were a lot of crazy deals being made in the mid-90s. I've heard before that because of stuff like Pulp Fiction really taking off, that there was kind of a need among some of the studios to find the, like, the next Tarantino or find like mm-hmm. the next you know niche or the next thing that was going to blow up. A good example of that was the guy that made... Uh, this is off topic. What was that? Oh, the Boondock Saints, Troy Duffy. Mm-hmm. He never made a film, but he had one script. He was like a bartender who wrote one script, and it got in the hands of Miramax, and the Miramax executive, who shall not be named, gave him $15 million to do it because they just thought, oh, this guy might be the new thing. That might be the new thing. This might be the new thing. So there were a lot of yeah, studios at the time who were just throwing money at whatever they could, banking on something being the next big thing. Yeah, and Clueless had been so big with mm-hmm. Alicia Silverstone which we should do at some point because I love that movie and there's so many 90s references in there. <laughs> but it had been so big and so successful that Mark Hanton was like, I'm willing to invest because I think we're going to get a lot of return investment here. And they did not. So yeah. we're going to look a little bit about why this movie sort of failed <laughs> in places where her previous movies had not or her previous movie had not. She'd been in other ones, but not big ones because she was like in Hideaway with... Jeff Goldblum and Jeremy Sisto and then that cool in the crazy movie we came across so Benji and I once sat down and watched this movie that we were like what is this because it was Alicia Silverstone and Jared Leto from 1994 directed by Ralph Bakshi oh my oh fuck I remember this thing okay you mentioned this earlier I was trying to remember what the hell you were talking about yeah that's like the period piece one right where it's the 1950s or 60s or some shit and Oh my god, that was a weird movie. I forgot that Ralph Bakshi directed that of all people. Yes, we will do one of the movies from the series at some point, because we went down this rabbit hole and we were like, the fuck? Because Showtime, in the late 90s, contracted a bunch of directors. 
unexpected directors like Ralph Bakshi and William Friedkin. I think Robert to, Rodriguez in there, too. Yeah, Robert Rodriguez did one of them to recreate a 1950s teen exploitation film with a 90s edge. And Ralph Bakshi's had Alicia Silverstone and Jared Leto in it. And yeah, that's story for another time. But crazy deep dive for anyone who wants to look that shit up before we get around to it. Yeah. Now, wow. Okay. Back to yeah, Alicia Silverstone's Aerosmith videos. This, oh, Aerosmith yeah. had painted her as this wild rebel it girl. Because in these videos, she's getting her belly pierced. She's bungee jumping off the overpass of the freeway. She's stealing cars. You know, like typical teen girl shenanigans. She's a figure in a virtual reality simulation that Jason Landon is hopping into for whatever reason she's a catholic school girl who's skipping class with arwen yeah good music no, i mean video. there's something about the videos that do work well except for the vr one <laughs> the amazing one is just such a weird video but in these videos yeah she is this wild rebel it girl and this movie is going to try to take that concept that had been so popular for her and make a movie basically around this entire premise that Alicia Silverstone is a wild rebel that uh, won't take shit from anyone. Um, and it doesn't quite work. And so we're going to talk about why. I was thinking about that. I think this doesn't work for the same reason that YouTubers often have a very hard time making films. Because that all happens sometimes. A person on YouTube gets really popular. They're given somebody to make a film. And it's like it's horrible jokes all the way through. The plots are terrible. And it's because they can make good content, but it's only a few minutes long. And Alicia Silverstone, you know, she could do the bad girl, it girl thing for the span of a five to six minute Aerosmith music video. But maintaining that for an hour, 40 minutes, not quite in her forte. I think for me, it's, well, in a way, this movie does work for me, and I know it shouldn't. So there's that. But <laughs> This is true of many I movies we watch. <laughs> doesn't work for other people is that they do make her wild and rebellious, but they also forget to make her redeemable or likable in any way for a lot of individuals. So that can be a problem with balancing out your character. But let's get into this movie here. Or should we do best thing, worst thing before we jump in? I don't have any of those. Or should we... <laughs> Let's just jump. We skip over that for today. Skipping We're going to skip that. over best thing, worst thing, because, yeah, this movie is all just weird. <laughs> it's <laughs> all The best thing and the worst weird. thing are the same thing, that this yes. movie exists and it shouldn't. Like I said, I don't like to say a movie is bad, but I will say that this movie is weird. It's yeah. just very strange. But I, it's clearly not meant to be that way. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah, and that's the best thing about it, and the worst thing, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll get into it. But we have to start this movie. We gotta start this movie up with a voiceover. All I ever wanted was a father who loved me. Someone to protect me if I was ever in trouble. Someone to guide me through life. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I wasn't sure if he'd pay or even show up. But it was never about the money. So... Never is. <laughs> never is about the money. We're getting our information really quick here. There was some rich old white guy is showing up and he's delivering a briefcase of some sort to a payphone and talking to someone else who's also on their cell phone using the voice modulator. And that certain someone is our hero ish of the movie Alicia Silverstone playing 
it doesn't matter. She's Alicia Silverstone. Emily Hope. She's playing a character named Emily Hope and talking yeah. to her father, Alexander Hope. I feel like a lot of just like rich old dudes are named Alexander in movies. It feels right. Yeah, yes, indeed. And she's talking to him on her cell phone. Then we immediately cut to a parking garage where she is presumably watching him and she's got a get up on London. This get up is shades of, yeah. of a certain something. I can't put my gray fingernail polish on it. Okay. Yeah. So right <laughs> already we're like, this is 1997. The uh, year uh, is 1997. London, you and did the thing. You did the thing with your hands where you bring your hands up and like slowly place them on yeah, the table. I'm and really like, excited I about this outfit. I need to tell you, I love it when you do that. I, that's like one thing. <laughs> I hate saying I adore a thing you do, but I just always adore when you do that. Because <laughs> you adore me secretly. Fuck it's off! Greatest shame. Fuck. Shut greatest up! Shame. Shut no. up! Talk about this movie. <laughs> She's got gray nail polish. First of all, that's really important because it's like black nail polish, but it's even a little bit different. It's like proto emo, and I really respect that. And this gray nail polish is matching her gray camo shirt that she has <laughs> over her baby doll T-shirt uh -huh. that has lipstick on it like a graphic picture of lipstick uh -huh. and then her pants are a black suede corduroy material that has those little i'm forgetting the name of them they're they start with a g <laughs> the little silver buttons they're not gauntlets that's the only word that's coming to me right now grommets there we go, that <laughs> are going down the side of the pants so that they look kind of like chaps, like bell-bottom chaps, but they're not chaps. They're full pants. They're kind of tearaway things or something, you know? Yeah, and she's also at some point going to have this yellow leather jacket that has this matching tiny yellow leather backpack. It's a look. It's... And... <laughs> It's the most iconic thing about this movie, it's, actually, because <laughs> she's going to wear this through most of the film. Is her eyeshadow gray, too? Was I seeing that? Am I imagine? Yeah, because she's edgy, man. She's edgy. I mean, gray isn't really a color I associate with edgy. Yeah. Okay. Like, the dark black makeup that is popular among grunge and goth wear, that can look super, super harsh on pale blonde women. So I think what's happening here is the makeup artist is just softening that a little bit for the camera by going with the grays. Okay, well, yeah. Now, the other thing about this opening is we have the opening credits in here, and the font they've used for the opening credits, I didn't have a chance to look up exactly what this font is, but it reminds me of the opening credits from Friends. If you remember that, yeah. it was kind of a handwritten style font. That's what they're using here for everything, for the title and for all the names. And it's always weird to me when opening credits use the same font for the title as they do for the names. Not just like the same font, it's the same size. Yeah, 1997, baby. Yeah, Alicia Silverstone's name comes up and then Excess Baggage, I forgot the name of the movie for a second, Excess Baggage comes up right after that and they look exactly the same. So like, ah, come on. You know, spiced up a little bit, make it bigger, bold that shit. I don't know, something. No, this is right before you really get all of those digital options, right? With your computers. These are early computer graphic title sequences. Yeah, like you want them to put like a color smear behind it and then like make all the letters squiggle. That's some 90s action right there. And I read somewhere that there were a lot of reshoots and additional works on this, which is normal among movies. But this opening narration, we don't get voiceover anywhere else in the film. 
And I always feel like when you get narration like this, this is kind of something added on after the fact to clarify something mm-hmm. or I, I don't know. But that's like what this smacks of to me is added narration to try and make it a bit more clear what the hell is going on. Yeah, I'm trying to think on whether or not it would or wouldn't be clear without the narration, but that is certainly what they seem to be mm-hmm. trying to do, is be like, no, this is the premise. But I think it would be pretty obvious, but... Yeah. We do get clear shots of her calling her dad on her own cell phone and then locking herself in the trunk of her car mm-hmm. after she informs him, your daughter will be in the trunk of her car on parking lot structure ground F or, you know, like whatever. She gives him the coordinates and then she puts herself in the car. She is calling on her own cell phone. We do get shots of the FBI agents that have been called in to work this case. They deduce it's her own cell phone, but that's okay because the kidnapper is probably using her cell phone. That makes sense. That's smart for the kidnapper, so it's not traced to them. Sure, right, 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 yeah, yeah. This also works to establish that she's super fancy because she has her own cell phone. Once again, this is 1997, and only wealthy, successful people have cell phones as teenagers in 1997. (laughs) That's not exclusively true, but it did remind me of Rami Michelle's High School Reunion, the movie that came out one year prior to this. Oh, yeah, okay. A whole plot point with the two characters in that where they're going to their high school reunion and they get a hold of a flip cell phone that they're going to bring to show that they're super successful businesswomen <laughs> because they have a cell phone and there's even a scene where Rami like pulls out her cell phone during the reunion she's like does anybody need to make a call I have a phone <laughs> and it's just like this amazing time capsule of a moment that shows like 1996 like the shit is fancy and Yeah, most people did not start getting cell phones. I mean, there were cell phones circulating in the Mm. 90s, but they were mostly around people who had cause for them. Sure, yeah. Like, early 2000s is where personal cell phones really starts taking off, according to my statistical research on the subject. She's taping herself up, handcuffing herself, throwing herself into the trunk of that car, saying, like, the plan was all perfect, but there was one thing I could not have predicted. Enter. Our man, our very usual suspect, Benicio del Toro, who had just made the usual usual suspect. So you know, I have to. Yeah, it. he's gonna enter to these swank jazz tunes, looking super sharp by '90s standards. And the jazz tunes, I was surprised to learn this, uh, come to us from a fellow named John Lurie, who was a composer in many of uh, Jim Jarmusch's Jim Jarmusch's Jarmusch Jarmusch's. You'll get there. <laughs> films down by law paradise <laughs> he did those things but what i find funny is he's the star of fishing with john which is something that's a joke among the criterion collection community that you can find online or on reddit fishing with john is the only television show that criterion ever made an edition of and it's often considered a joke because it's a very early dvd for them and the graphic design for that thing is terrible it's the most uncriterion collection DVD of all time, and it stars the composer of this film. How fun is that? Fun, weird little trivia bit. And yeah, Benicio Del Toro, he's coming into this garage. He was apparently handpicked for the role by Silverstone since she was in a producer position. She had choice over the casting here. She had seen the usual suspects and liked Benicio in it and brought him aboard. Look at Alicia flexing a little bit to bring on the boy here. Yeah, Very so nice. I guess this attraction was legit at the time for 18-year-old Alicia Silverstone to say, like, yeah, I want to 
co-star with him. He seems like he knows his stuff. <laughs> He's going to show up and carjack the car that she just put herself in the trunk of. And this car... What is this car? This car is a BMW 850i. It's part of the 8 series from BMW. And I researched this car. I did because... <laughs> The things we're going to bring to this episode, because <laughs> there's not a whole lot of like film production details. Film production is pretty standard outside of the crazy film inflation stuff. But the car does figure into this a lot, so I think yeah, it's justified. This, is, this movie is a movie about car thieving, ostensibly. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to look up how to carjack something and <laughs> why? why you'd carjack something. Oh, God. And it was yet another really fun Google search that I'm pretty sure put me on a list. And it's just a growing list. But most of the sites that I found hilariously were these things that were like, okay, so carjacking is a felony and don't do it. This is just for survivalist or emergency purposes only. And yet then they would have these photographs with these little subheaders on them or whatever that just say, you can hotwire older cars like this beautiful classic Mercedes-Benz 560 SEC from 1990. But only <laughs> for survival purposes. Yeah. I was like, thanks, website. But so, <laughs> yes, I will tell you how to carjack here. But first, I will tell you about this actual car. And this car, yeah, is a Model 8 series. It began its design development in 1981, but it took them nine years. Good Lord. So the first release of the 8 series was in 1990. Unfortunately, by that time, the global recession of the early 90s hit, the Persian Gulf War was ongoing, and the energy price spikes. Yeah. These mm -hmm. all are going to cause a halt in the production of the 8 series. And so they're not going to actually produce a lot of these cars. They ceased sale of the 850 in the U.S. in 1997, the same year that this movie came out, oh, and then wow. internationally in 1999. And what's cool about the 8 series for car people apparently is that it is the <laughs> first model to offer a v12 engine oh. in a six-speed manual transmission on a road car that yeah a v12 on a car is that's a little rare that's normally something reserved for you know pickup trucks or hardcore work vehicles not a, a road car Yes, this thing has an engine. Really. Damn. <laughs> and when it was pulled in 97, or not pulled, but kind of just ceased sale in 97, they had sold a total of 6,920 Series 8s. And then internationally in 99, they had sold about 30,000 in all markets. Okay. So that means that this is actually a rare car oh, when okay. only 7,000 right. are out there. So a hot item for a carjacker. Yeah, because, like, there's tens of thousands of, like, the Toyota Camry, for example, that yeah. are sold every year, not only, like, a 10-year period, right? Sure. So this is actually a rare car, and its price point is quite high. It the time, it was selling for about 70 grand, which, by 2020 standards, is about $140,000 huh. oh, wow. for the car. Okay. So price, this is a pricey yeah. vehicle. Damn, son, that's a Tesla these days. My God. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll talk in a little bit about Tesla where things. this would be sold oh, once it's sold. Okay. But we'll, we'll hold on to that. We'll spread this out. Just keep that pin going. You just put yeah, that pin in Yeah, we're going to put a pin in that. But yeah, basically this car, it's it's a hot commodity mm -hmm. for some, for high luxury stealing. So London, I'm a carjacker and I want to jack a good car. How do I jack that car goodly? 
Yeah, alright, so, this is another thing that apparently is well known among carjackers, is that there are two separate poles of carjacking. There's your pre-1996-1999, that date varies, models, and then there's the post-1999 models. Pre-1999, super easy to jack a car. Post-1999, not as easy to jack a car. And also a completely different process, because that's when you start getting into having electronic keyless entry and key fobs and stuff, which you can steal a keyless entry car, but it takes like just digital stuff and relay things and scanning the key code. It's doable, but it's not as fun. That doesn't sound cinematic. Yeah, the pre-stuff, there's two ways. So you can either do the screwdriver hammer way, or you can do the wiring way. Oh. Now, screwdriver hammer plier way is that you get into that car, and it's really easy to get into a pre-1999 car. There's a whole bunch of different ways to do it. The common one is to just get something very thin and long that you can push down where the windows generally roll down Mm -hmm. and kind of just like get into that little click and pull it up. But once you're in, you want to insert that screwdriver into the ignition as you would a key. Hmm. Use your hammer to drive the screwdriver in and turn screwdriver clockwise as you force it. Use pliers in event of resistance. That sounds way too easy. Side note, this will likely ruin the ignition cylinder, but whatever, I oh, guess. <laughs> I mean, you're going to steal the car, I sure. suppose, and I guess replace the cylinder. I, I don't know. Okay. I guess you're going to want to swap out the, the key port anyway. But Fair enough. this will get the car to start. Yeah, oh. it seems very simple, right? It actually is apparently very simple to steal cars. Lots of them get stolen. In 60 seconds, if you will. Yeah, apparently with <laughs> keyless stealing now it takes about like 10 to 20 seconds so like they're blowing those 60 seconds or less out of the water but still (laughs) manual always more fun nicholas cage in gone in 10 seconds gone in 10 seconds doesn't have the same ring to it not really no the wire version you look for two brown wires okay and if the car has two brown wires you cut both of those rub them together and it'll jumpstart the car Then you want to electrical tape that shit separately so you don't fry yourself. Like you just cap those little things off. Yeah. That's hot wiring, right? Yes. Okay. And then if you only have one brown wire in the car, you look for two red wires and you want to cut those, strip an inch off of them, connect those two, so the two red wires, and then you find the one brown wire and you connect that to the red wires. And... That will jumpstart it. This is once so complicated. Started, I, you want to snip uh, the brown end off and wrap that once again with electrical wire because you don't want to burn yourself or electrocute yourself. This is a step I find that often car movies tend to skip over. Like yeah. nobody takes time to wrap shit in electrical tape after they hotwire. You something always just see movie. them like twisting the wires together with their thumb and index finger. But it sounds like that yeah, would. Yeah, hur- that's also not great. Um, apparently, you want to use some insulated gloves. Mm-hmm. But like, it's cooler, I guess, in movies <laughs> if you're like, "Fuck electricity!" Like, I got this. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Invincible. But yeah, so that's how hot wire car. Super simple. But they do seem to have like these fancy little tools and stuff in car movies. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like that's that's what our boy Benicio is doing here because when he breaks in, he opens the door. I guess through the method of a thin thing down the window really quick. The car alarm starts going off, and he yanks out this little black module that was in the car. I looked it up. It's called a Car Alarm Elite DM 
1500, which is both a car alarm and an early form of keyless entry, remote starting for fancy vehicles. But from what I could tell, the fact that this thing is installed underneath the steering wheel is a sign that whoever did this did not care very much or was done on the cheap. You don't want to install these things where they can easily be gotten to because he just yanks this thing out, plugs another wire into it from some device he has, hits a button, and the alarm just shuts off. Maybe it's because Alexander Hope is known for his shady business deals, so maybe Uh. he just does things fast and cheap. Maybe Emily T. Hope just doesn't care enough about her possessions to take good care of them. Or maybe it just seemed easier, like, this is the way we know how to break into a car. <laughs> so we'll do it this, I don't know. Speaking but yeah. of Alexander Hope, shady business deals, not giving a shit about possessions, he has dropped the ransom money that Alicia Silverstone in this guise of a kidnapper has demanded of him and drops it onto a passing barge that's going underneath the bridge. And in a very poor move by the police, they send a helicopter to chase this barge and they have opened up the briefcase because, whoa, a briefcase on our barge. What? What is this thing? Helicopter just completely blows all the money away, which didn't seem like it was taped down or wrapped up in any way. It's just a briefcase of loose $100 bills amounting to a million dollars. It just seems like a poor, there's poor choices all around. Yeah, at this point, you're like, nah, the the fake kidnappers deserve to get away with this because this is a shoddy operation right here where basic common sense would maybe say, like, not approach an open case of paper with a chopper because if you fly a (laughs) chopper, you know how strong the wind power is there. But nah, they're just going to kind of come closer to it. These poor dudes on the barge that really have nothing to do with this kidnapping because we've already seen that Emily in her voiceover has explained this isn't about the money she just wants her father's attention and for him to come rescue her because daddy issues Mm -hmm. so she just picks this random barge for them to throw the money onto and yeah these poor little unexpecting barge dudes are like the fuck is happening so yeah it's, it's just a clusterfuck all around And they fail to retrieve the money. Alexander is pissed because he cares more about the money than his daughter because we've come to understand this setup. Meanwhile, Benicio decides to egress. We'll use the word egress again. Egress. Egress from this parking garage. I would say aggressively egress, in fact. Aggressively egress from this parking garage. That he does. It has nobody else in it. It's like a very empty parking garage. No one's around. Slow parking day. The police are on his tail. Benicio outmaneuvers them because he's a car thief. He can maneuver cars and he's driving a road car with a V12 engine. So I guess, yeah, he's got some horsepower helping him out and gets back to his completely baller hideout because he has that awesome like storage container garage door that he goes into. I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. And he's super confused because he's like, all right, I just stole this car. Why are these cops immediately on my ass? And it's because the cops have been looking out for Emily's car because they're supposed to go retrieve her body, Mm -hmm. her living body from the trunk. But Benicio doesn't know these things because he's an unsuspecting innocent thief. And (laughs) he comes back. He goes through the personal possessions that are in the car empties out the purse that he finds in the front seat. There's also along the back seat, I noticed, as this chase sequence is happening, Emily's car just has all of this shit in the back window that's just (laughs) sort of propped up above the trunk, which are just all of these 
open, unjeweled case CDs. Oh, no. And one VHS tape that's just rattling around back there. Uh, so no. She doesn't take care of her possessions very well. She's got an excess of stuff mm-hmm. that she doesn't really care about. But yeah, I'm like, that's super bad for them to leave him out in that yeah. hot baking sun through the glass. Like, come on. Get the flip book. You get the big flip book. You put your CDs in there. There you go. I You can't do anything with the VHS tape. That's just going to be there. I do wonder, though, what is on this. It's not a rental, right? It's one of right. the home-recorded VHS tapes. I wonder what's on that tape that she's just carrying around in her car yeah. on the backseat. <laughs> oh, something spicy. I mean, there's a Mystery. That's a home video that got really spicy really fast. I, I wonder. I do yeah, have questions. Now, yeah, he empties her purse. He sees her grumpy, grumpy license because she's a rebel. So yeah. her license is super grumpy. I also like that she has a, I had to look, I forgot what these things were called because I'm I'm very square, a wooden dugout, which is uh, one of those things you put weed into and often will have like the little pipe that you do for like a one shot you know, push it in there, push the weed in there, and off you go. Looks like a cigarette thing. But yeah, she has one of those, and that's never addressed throughout the rest of the movie. She never smokes true, weed. She doesn't smoke weed or talk about smoking weed, but, oh, it's there. It's She's there. got that drug paraphernalia in her purse. She's a rebel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's going to go through this car. He's going to begin to strip it, get it up on the hoists. Mm-hmm. Enter Christopher Walken. <laughs> As uh, Mr. Perkins... Or Uncle Ray, who is Alexander, the, the rich guy's buddy, his uh, his fix-it fella. And you have Christopher Walken. He's doing his thing. This is Christopher Walken in, in like a point in his career where he wasn't like a walking meme quite yet. His performances often were just, you'll be intimidating, which he could do very well. I did find an interview with Del Toro who stated that the best advice he'd ever been given on acting came from Christopher Walken. Oh. Which was... When you're in a scene and you don't know what you're going to do, don't do anything. And I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, that explains some things about Christopher Walken to me somehow. But that just stoic presence that he sometimes has where he just stands there and yeah. he just stares. And I'm like, oh, so that's what you're doing. You're yeah. doing nothing. Okay. <laughs> yes. But you have Christopher Walken, his awesome voice. And the guy who plays the rich dad, his voice is really weird, too. I couldn't really figure out if he was going for a a transatlantic accent or an English accent or what the hell it is, but it's just so strange. Like, this is Mr. Perkins. He is my man. He will help me recover my daughter. Did you did you notice that? Yeah, his performance was really weird to me in general. He seemed to be the one dude in all of this that just really was not trying. Like, everybody else was doing something. Oh, uh, yeah, I'll say that for, like, all the things that we will say about this movie... Uh, really, with the exception of the father of, uh, I think his, the actor's name is Jack Thompson, everyone else, they want this to work, and they're doing what they can and giving good performances as much as they can. But yeah, this guy, the dad, he's just, yeah, I'm a rich man, yes, my daughter's gone, I need to do business things, you know, I have business things to do, I'm... Yes, maybe it was a purposeful inaccessibility because he's the cold, distant father. But yeah, I'm like, I don't know why you want this dude's attention. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't got a lot going on for him. I don't know. But yeah, there's something kind of weird about him. He just seemed to be delivering some lines. And the lines he delivers are just catching us up so far with where we're at, that she seems to be gone again, the money's gone, the girl's gone, the car is gone, everybody fucked up. There are some detectives there who say, well, we saw someone driving the car away. 
dark hair, Caucasian. That's like, that narrows it down. Thanks, FBI. Meanwhile, it's also just like pouring down rain, oh, which yeah. I find curious. Like, so there's much just rain. so many establishing like rain shots. So we get the outside of this big house that the hopes live in and it's pouring down rain and then we're inside and it's pouring down rain and there's something that looks almost fabricated about the rain and yet i couldn't see them putting in that extra step since it doesn't mean anything to the narrative and it's not raining elsewhere right when benicio Mm -hmm. pulls into his warehouse it's not raining so I don't know if it was just raining really hard that day that they needed the shots. And so they were like, okay, we'll just match the interiors with the exterior. Or, yeah, I I don't know what's going on with this rain because this rain Uh, looks fabricated. (laughs) And I don't know why they would fabricate it. (laughs) Uh, From what I could tell, this was all filmed in Vancouver. So... Maybe Vancouver's a rainy town some days. Who knows? Yeah, it is. So maybe like, yeah, it's just a torrential downpour and they're like, we need to get these shots. It's (laughs) just going to be raining. But it's strangely distracting because they are going to cut back to Benicio and his warehouse not raining. Like maybe they're in different parts of Seattle. This is technically set in Seattle, I guess. We'll discuss that later. Filmed in Vancouver. It's set in Seattle, Washington. Yes, yes. Yeah, so rainy all around. But yeah, not raining when Benicio pulls up into his warehouse. And he's working on this car. And this car is jiggling all around up on its hoists. Mm -hmm. And so he brings it down, opens the car trunk, and there Alicia Silverstone is all bound, gagged, handcuffed, duct taped, He has a crowbar lifted up, ready to smash whatever's in this trunk. And then he gets startled, and he slams the trunk again, and then he bolts. So he's just really afraid of this bound woman in the trunk, which is kind of fun. Well, no, I didn't expect that. Oh, this throws a wrench in the plan of just flipping this car. (laughs) Yeah, so he's like, okay, I need to go to this local diner and use a payphone, because 1997. Also, he's in a criminal enterprise, so it's actually probably best to use a payphone that's not your phone and so it was like this quaint little moment of like oh yeah that was really one of the things that was great about crime in the 90s is that you had payphones around that you could make your calls from good times couldn't trace them you know anonymous calls over the place and he's getting impatient because there's a guy on the phone who is taking five minutes to explain how to use the vcr to record something and i just think you fucking push the button man it's not a difficult thing to explain to someone i don't know but eventually he does get on the phone and he has uh, this conversation with his buddy we got a problem did you get the g yeah i got the g so what's the problem we got a problem you get the warehouse right away okay. come on right away so did you get the g yes but there is a problem that's established the G has been obtained. Yeah. What is the... Why, why... That's a strange term, G. I know, I forgot to look this up. I'm looking at my highlighting now, and I was like, damn it. Oh. Yeah, what is the G? Do you know what the G is? I don't, I don't know, know what the G is. I don't know what the G is, but he has the G. I mean, I assume they're referring to the car when they say the G, and they're speaking in code because, you know, they're on the telephone, and you never know who's listening. Gotta, gotta speak in code. Yeah, I I have no idea. That seems odd. Like, I've heard, like, the G in terms of, like, money before. but So maybe it's just, like, the money value deposit. I don't know. Uh, But, yeah. And Benicio Del Toro's acting choices and accent choices here are strangely delightful. Even though he's going to mumble his way through this movie. Nothing is very articulated. And it's kind of great. 
he also is going to seem a little cognitively out of it. And I, it's almost like he's drugged or drunk or cognitively diminished in some capacity throughout all of this, but we're given no explanation. So we don't actually see him be drunk or drugged or anything. So he just seems like he might be a little slow. And that's really fun as well. We're just, he's smart enough to participate in an international car thief circuit, but he takes a little while to come around to things <laughs> that are happening in front of him, and it's fun to watch. Well, yeah, because back at the hideouts, Alicia, Emily Hope, she gets out of the trunk, uh, you'll freeze herself, she's hidden the key in her boots. You know, she's a smart gal, like that with her own kidnapping, tries to get out, but all the doors are locked, so uh, Vincent, Benicio Del Toro, he, he arrives back, they have a little bit of a fight, he gets her into the bathroom, gets the pair of handcuffs. Yeah, now, now this starts to sound like it's going to go somewhere. It's like, all right, what are we doing here? Handcuffs her to the pipe in the bathroom. My, my favorite line of the movie. You're cuffed to my bathroom pipe. Honey, don't play me like that. Honey, don't play me like that. Because she's like, what are you going to do now? Right? Like, the fun thing about Emily is that she is, in her own right, a little bit of a sociopath, and she has no fear. Like, not once. No, she does not that's fear true. anything. She doesn't give a fuck, mm -hmm. and it's super fun. This is, I think, why this movie works for me when it doesn't work for a lot of other people, is I just like watching this sociopathic individual just be sociopathic in what should otherwise be a stressful or distressful situation. But she's just chucking stuff from the medicine cabinet at him and it's like let me out of here and he's like i don't really know what to do in this situation this was not something i planned for there is no point in this movie where emily seems to stop and say oh some poor choices were made along the way or oh this isn't a good situation it's just always okay how am i gonna get out of this what what am i doing next what am i gonna climb next who am i gonna smack around next she has no regret yeah. and no remorse at any point in this film She's pure it. She's just super rich, super privileged, and super mm. bored. <laughs> she's like, mm -hmm. what can I do next to feel something? Yes. Enter the true star of this film, Harry yeah. Connick Jr. Yeah, he comes in. <laughs> He's suddenly in this, and you're like, this is a strange eclectic class. Harry Connick Jr. is in this movie now. Okay, great. Let's see what Will Smith's buddy in Independence Day has to do in this film. What does he have to do in this film? Why is he here? Well, it seems like he... I don't really know if, if he's Vincent's boss, but he's the guy who sets up the carjackings or lets him know, get this car next. And he wants to know, like, oh, hey, you got that BMW, great. Hey, you got this Ferrari. I'm going to hump this Ferrari right now. And he just humps a Ferrari for whatever reason. But Vincent is trying to tell him something is amiss, something is wrong. And he takes a long time to get to the point. To Harry Connick Jr.'s character, it's like, everything's fine, man. You're just telling me that you robbed this thing. It all went well. Then he finally gets to the point. Look, man, I look at the damn thing. It's moving, man. It's on a hoist. It's going to move, any Right. I bring the car down. I open the trunk. Bang. Don't do it. Wham. You know what I'm saying? I find the owner in the trunk. The owner. Who's that? That's the owner in the trunk, man. That's the owner in the trunk, man. <laughs> yeah, bing, bada, boom, don't do it, you know yeah, what I'm saying? That, I don't know what that is. <laughs> like, bing, bada, boom, don't do it, man, know what I mean? Like, I don't, 
I think I know what you mean. In the trunk. You're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do, buddy. Like, I just, I love his performance. It's so inaccessible in yeah. some ways. It's like, what is so... going on through your mind right now? Where are your cognitive functions? All it's right, completely cool. weird, but I don't mind it. I really. I... No, I love it. I absolutely love it. It feels like, it sounds like we're making fun of it, but it is just one of those things, like, it's it's crazy, but it's super endearing what he's doing throughout this no, film. No, it's pure joy is what it evokes, where he's yeah. just like, it's the owner in the trunk, and you're like, all right. So, yeah, he's taken this circuitous route to set up this story. <laughs> Look at you and dropping then... your $10 words to circuitous. I can't even fucking say yeah, it. Yeah, see? Look at that. That's, circuitous. That's what I bring to this cast, <laughs> Benji's eloquence. <laughs> Anyway. Okay. Yeah, you had no follow-up to that, I realize. <laughs> That's all I bring to this guy. So this is the only thing. Now, the owner in the trunk is handcuffed in the bathroom, and we have this operation with Harry Connick Jr. as the fence. Okay. So now it's time to talk about this operation okay. that they have going here. So, What, what is it? car thieving operation and market look I mean, like? As I see it, just from face value in this movie, it seems like Vincent steals the car. And then Greg, played by Harry Connick Jr., sells the car? Yeah, he's kind of like a fence. He's kind of like a, a go-between. He knows guys well, who knows guys who want cars. So what is the setup then? What would their setup be? So there are three main resell markets for stolen vehicles. Okay. The most common one are chop shops. So most of the cars that are stolen are actually not high-luxury motor vehicles. They are common everyday vehicles. The two most stolen cars in America are the Ford Fiat and the Toyota Camry because everybody drives those cars. Yep. And when everyone drives them, they're some of the most sold cars. So it's also just a percentage value that when you have that many on the street, you have that many more that can get stolen. But when you have that many on the street, there's that much more of a demand for parts. And you can either be a shop that buys those parts wholesale and then puts them in a customer's car and makes a little bit of profit, or you can get those parts for free by stealing them and then put them in customers' cars and get full market value for... Oh, I don't... I just... Safe worded. Oh, no. We're not safing word yet. We're not safe wording yet. And get the full, Beep. yeah, price back <laughs> on those. Now... Yeah, we'll just beep it out. Yeah, there like, you cry, go. Now... <laughs> The, uh, where was it? Yeah, so chop shops are the most common car thieving import export kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, the second one are when you do steal high luxury cars, where do those go? The most common place for them to go are actually to international markets. There is a greater resale value for cars when you export them overseas where they're worth a little bit more money because of how exponential those export costs generally are to do it legally. So yeah, you can get a better deal if you buy a stolen and shipped car internationally. Okay. And that is where, like, it's kind of interesting that they went with the 8 series that had been canceled that year in the U.S., but was still available internationally, oh, because that actually indicates yeah. that there's not as much of an international market, that there's mm -hmm. probably more of a domestic market for this particular BMW car. That being said, though, out of the high-luxury cars that are stolen, BMWs do generally consistently rank in the number two slot of cars that are stolen oh. in the high luxury brand 
bracket. What was uh, number the... one ones are Audis. Oh, hmm. yeah. All right. So, so yeah, Mercedes is up there. Chrysler was up there, and Range Rovers are also mm-hmm. a really big resale stolen car. Oh, sure. <laughs> then you get if you're gonna sell them or steal and sell domestically, what you need to do is you need to scrub the VIN number. So every car has an individual VIN number that is like its own little identification Oh, vehicle DNA identification number? Yes. That's what that's short for. Oh! Yeah. That's Look at so- that. We learned something today. What's up? When you, yeah, scrub a VIN number, you can give it a new VIN number, but that's not super easy to do because that VIN number needs to come from somewhere. Mm. So one of the ways to do this is to just steal the VIN number. It's kind of like stealing somebody's social security number. You steal that car's social security number and you register it to a new car. One of the things that if you're in the market for high luxury sports cars and vehicles, that if you buy a new one to make sure it's not stolen, there is a national registry database where you can put the VIN number in and make sure that it's not registered to another car already, because that's a sure sign that, hey, this is already in use. Sometimes it's also indicative if you start getting parking tickets or something issued to your car's VIN number and you're like, but I've never been to Wisconsin. Like, why are why is this my car apparently there? So those are little hints. Mm-hmm. But yeah, checking with the database is one of the best things to do. But one of the interesting things that I found that people will do if they have the option is that you can get totaled sports cars at auction so if you find a make and model and color that is up for auction that's been totaled you can buy that for super cheap at auction and then you can go out and steal one that matches it and give that stolen car the vin number from the totaled car and it's (laughs) called vin cloning oh and it's super clever because then usually people aren't as actively looking for that VIN number because that VIN number was legally sold. Okay. And so like that one is in legal circulation. And so while somebody's looking for that stolen car, they're not necessarily looking for the VIN number that was legally purchased at auction. So that's a a little workaround that I thought was kind of fun and clever. But yes, once again, now probably on the watch list, (laughs) high luxury (laughs) import thieving. But the more you know, you know, fun stuff going on out there. This podcast is not brought to you by a virtual private network, and that is terrifying. Yeah. So <laughs> now there was a international car thieving circuit that was recently busted, I suppose. And what it looked like they were doing was that they had a lot of ports in West Africa that were taking the imports and then they were kind of like selling them from there. So it was like a very international operation that they had set up. Hmm. And we are going to get the sense later that that does seem to be a little bit of what's going on here as well, is that Harry Connick Jr. sort of has the hookups to the people that have the transportation to move these cars very quickly. So it seems like they bring them to this warehouse, they strip them down, they process them. And then they get them on the trucks and the boats super quick to get to international buyers. Because we are going to have Harry Connick Jr. at dinner here soon where these two people are going to show up and they have a buyer on the line for the car that Mm -hmm. was ordered, like this one Ferrari that's in the garage. And it does seem like they're picking up this car to, to ship it somewhere. So that 
I would imagine the the international stuff seems to be more what they're doing than Vin scrubbing or cloning. Okay. So we've narrowed it yeah. down then. Very good. Yeah. Well, it's a good operation they have going, and they don't want Emily to be fucking that up. So Harry Connick Jr. Greg just tells Vincent, okay, you need to get this woman the fuck out of here. So Vincent puts a hoodie over her, handcuffs her, and they begin to head out. But not before Emily tries to start smoking. Vincent is like, this is a nice car. You're not smoking in here. Put that out. He says, put it out in the ashtray. But she just flicks into this bucket full of dirty rags. And dirty rags from a car shop are going to have a lot of flammable material on them. Yeah, they are. So that's a problem for many reasons. Yeah, he's like, put it out. And she's like, okay, okay. Like, <laughs> we see the spark. Uh-huh, yeah. This uh, this character has a thing with burning, we find. Yeah, because at some point, we will see in her room that she has a framed newspaper clipping from her time in boarding school where the headline was, Heiress suspected in school library fire, or something of that nature, <laughs> boarding school fire. So... We get the sense that this bitch previously burned down her boarding school, and then she framed that article. Yeah. Because once again, she's a rebel. She's a wild child that doesn't have daddy's attention, so she needs to act out to get it. And she's a little bit of a pyro, yeah. a little pyromaniac, so she knows what she's doing here, I think. She didn't just save the newspaper or you know scrapbook it or say that. She framed the headline that accuses her of burning down a building. Yeah. It's pretty fun. This girl got issues, okay? This is once again where it's like, this film is losing most people, but I'm still in it. Oh, <laughs> yes. Some bitches just want to see the world burn. Yeah. She's one of them. And as they're driving along now, Emily, she's had enough of the whole hoodie thing and ducking down. She just hops, like, sits up, takes the hoodie off, and starts kind of taunting Vincent. And we, we have uh, this little conversation. Well, guy, like, you wouldn't know anything about pride of ownership. You wouldn't know what loss is. You steal. Probably get a hard on doing it. All part of the live on the razor's edge, run till you drop, never say die, world of grand theft auto. Let me tell you something. Once the old Ferrari with a chihuahua in the back, he made less noise than you do. <sighs> he speaks. God, that's hot. Never say die, grand theft auto. <laughs> It should be mentioned that the part I did not include in that recording is right before that, she asked, what are you and your tightly bound bundle of sticks boyfriend going to get for the car? Yeah, and that's another thing where it's like, okay, you are not doing your protagonist any favors, yeah. right? You are making her a homophobic little bitch. Yeah. That shit's not cool. Oh. Once again, like we're not giving our character redeeming qualities, and it's one of the reasons that this movie fails, because you do not want to empathize with this privileged chick that doesn't actually have any problems and is super problematic in a lot of her language. Because yeah. not only is she homophobic, she also seems to be classist here a little bit. Also, maybe a little racist, hard to say for sure, but she does seem to accuse Benicio of just being this certain person out of nowhere. That he's like, bitch, you don't know me. Yeah. Right? Like, you put yourself in the trunk. You invited yourself into my world. I'm just trying to get rid of you. And then we put on top of that that we have this interaction. It's like, this is the stuff that true romance is born from, apparently. Right? Like, this is our meet cute. <laughs> You know, I did see some articles 
in researching this that said there are a lot of rumors that Alicia Silverstone and Benicio Del Toro were dating while they were making this movie. And I thought to that joke from Friends, I think at some point Joey is explaining onstage chemistry to Chandler. Yeah. And he says, uh, no, no, man, you don't have to worry. She she had chemistry with that guy on stage. Isn't that bad? No, no. That means they're not dating. You've seen like me in plays, right? Yeah. You ever see me have chemistry people on stage? No. Exactly. That's because I'm having sex with all the people I'm in plays with. If people are having sex, they have no on-screen or on-stage chemistry. Yeah. I would say Alicia Silverstone and Benicio Del Toro in this movie do not have that much chemistry on, on screen. Yeah, they really don't. I actually thought of the same thing where I'm like, well, if anything, they might have been dating because they have no chemistry. They might also just have no chemistry. That's also an option. Yeah. yeah. But mm-hmm. Yeah, either way, the chemistry just is not quite there. And so the music's going to try really hard in a little bit here. And we will talk about the music to create that chemistry for us. And it's hilarious. But right now we have this birth of apparently their true romance, as it were. As the warehouse that she set on fire explodes in a different jump cut scene. The fuck was in this place? (laughs) I mean... Well, I mean... We've got a lot of rags, we've got a lot of fuel, we've got a lot of gasoline and grease. I, oh, oh, yeah, but this thing is so, just, it's gone up in flames completely. Some truckers, well, people that we think are truck drivers drive by the thing that's on fire, and you think they're just truck drivers, but apparently these two guys are part of the operation as well. Yeah, they're pretty great, weirdly, actually. Yeah, it's... it's <laughs> There's these two guys, they're driving a truck, they're talking about having to go pick up the goods... And they're philosophizing on why they don't drive around in high luxury cars, because one of them's like, yeah, if I saw a guy like me driving around in a car like that, like shit would get real ugly. <laughs> like I would I would not be OK with that. And I'm like, that's a weird self-loathing statement, but it's also kind of strangely hilarious because these two guys are just clearly these like salts of the earth, like overall wearing covered in grease stains at all time, just in it for the job kind of dudes. This warehouse is burning and Walken is suspicious because remember, Christopher Walken is in this movie. He's on the case. Christopher Walken, he's he's gonna he's determined to get Emily back to her father so that she can continue to not be loved by her father in any way, shape, or form. But he starts checking around and he goes to the cafe that Vincent was at earlier. And this place, we see the sign to it. There's this cool neon sign out front that says Ovaltine. And you think, Ovaltine? What an odd thing to advertise. No, this place is called the Ovaltine Cafe, and this is a real place in Vancouver that apparently, if a film is in production in Vancouver and they need an old-fashioned diner, this is the go-to joint. So I can't imagine like what it's like to be a regular customer of this place, to be walking along and say, all right, yeah, let's go ahead and get in, uh, go get some breakfast, some hash browns, eggs, and ah, fuck, there's a movie going down, damn it all. They're filming again. There are locations that are like that. We talked about Bronson Caves on Swiss Army Man. There's always something being shot there. (laughs) Like, I just wanted some bacon, but damn it all, they have to shoot iRobot, which was another film that took place there. Oh, God damn it. They're doing scenes from the reboot of Charmed. So, yeah. No, it's it's good to have, like, the spot that you have contracts with that are just welcoming, because that's always nice in movie production. But Walken, he's uh, into the waitress. He's, like, talking up a good game with her. This waitress has CDs of herself singing. What do you think of this? 
who is not into this waitress? Though I mean, this waitress. Yeah, is I awesome. was immediately in love with this woman. So this woman has this little like she's got the curly bleached to hell hair <laughs> that's just piled on the top of her head, and this t-shirt that's super tight on her gigantic chest, and this t-shirt just has a hot dog graphic on it that's very similar to the lipstick graphic. I'm almost wondering if they either got this from the same clothing line or if they actually printed up the shirts for... Because there was that like whole craze in the 90s of like, you can print your own t-shirts now, and it kind of has that vibe. But she has the hot dog across her boobs, and it just says Willie's Wieners under it in cursive script. And I'm like, the Willie's Wieners waitress. I'm into you, girl. Yeah. And she has, she's a singer and has published a CD of songs. And Walken and this waitress have more chemistry than Del Toro and Silverstone do. Yeah, they so do. Walken has so much game. It's oh, so great. it's like he sees the the CDs. He's looking like, wait a minute. That's, this is you. These are fine songs. They don't they make the songs like this anymore. Do they? Sorry, that's my bad Walken impersonation. <laughs> I don't like to do walking impersonations because that's like the Diet Coke of impersonations. Everyone's got a walking impersonation. Of whatever. Everybody but you, apparently. I, it's so basic. I'm basic enough as it is, dear God. So he buys one of her CDs to charm her uh-huh. and talk about Vincent, this car thief. He learns about Vincent. As far as she knows, he's an artist who has a warehouse nearby that just burned down. And he also has a cabin up somewhere north. And he sent her a postcard once. Here's the address. Oh, so that's convenient. Walken, yeah, extracts a lot of information from this super sweet older waitress, Willie's Wieners waitress woman. <laughs> and he buys a copy of her CD and a cassette yeah. of her greatest love songs of old. And he bounces. I like to think he is legit into her and into her singing. This is like fact gathering, information gathering. But he is legit like going to listen to this and he's going to like come back and probably pick her up, take her out for a drink or something. I don't know. I think he's like just really into this woman. Who can blame him? He does listen to her CD in the car later, the cassette in the car later. And he likes it. So, yeah, I'm shipping it. It's sweet. It's true. Vincent has kicked Emily out of the car and left her out in the middle of nowhere to just get rid of her. Like, it's a strange way of uh, going about this. I don't know. Normally, just taking somebody off to a deserted area and saying, okay, get out. The highway is that way. Like, you should be able to make it within an X number of hours, but I'll be long gone by then. Isn't the worst... It's not a great plan, but it's not the worst plan given the circumstances of accidental kidnapping. Sure, sure. It's better than just, like, killing her and disposing her body in the woods. Right. Which he probably should do because she's mm. seen his face and his warehouse and can identify the voice of his partner, Harry Connick Jr. So And the car, every, yeah. Loose ends. Probably want to clean those up. But no, he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm just going to drop you in the woods. And she's like, you can't leave me out here. Like, it's the middle of the woods. And he's like, you'll be fine. And (laughs) she does not want to go. So she just jumps on the car hood. And then he gets mad because she, like, scratches the car. But she's like, no, don't leave me out here. So he drops her off elsewhere instead. But once he does, he makes his way back to a convenience store to pick up some whiskey. sees on the TV that his warehouse is burning and that 
Emily T. Hope's car, who has been recently a victim of kidnapping and has all of these FBI agents after her, the car was found in the warehouse, so now he's like, holy shit, I am linked to this important privileged bitch's kidnapping. I need to go find her again and get her to call and speak out on my behalf that I was not her original kidnapper. So he goes back to find her. She's walking along the highway, looking super bedraggled because she has to walk in these 90s platform boots and her yellow pleather leather jacket. And he's like, come on, man, get back in the car. And she's like, no, why should I? And he's like, I have Twinkies. And that works. That like, works. I got a Twinkie in the car. It's all yours if you want it. And this is a romantic moment because we start to hear some guitar music strumming up. And we get these lyrics. You've got your ball. You've got your chain. Tied to me tight. Tie me up again. Who's got their claws in you, my friend? And that's when we realize. These are Dave lyrics. Dave? Dave Matthews. Hardcore fans call him Dave. Yeah. Oh, excuse me for being alive in the 90s and having two ears connected to a heart. <laughs> That's not from this movie, that's from Community, and it's one of the best things from Community, so it was important. Season 5, Episode 3, the Ass Crack Bandit episode, but yes, Dave Matthews, that we get Crash Into Me from Dave Matthews, which was a song he released in 1996, and we hear it twice in this movie. And the first time that you showed this movie to me, I remember laughing uproariously out loud when this song started. Because one, it feels completely out of place, and it's insisting upon us that this is a romantic moment. And it's fucking Dave Matthews. It is. I once asked a friend of mine who is really into music, I'm very musical literate, I'll have to admit. But I asked him, hey man, what's the deal with Dave Matthews? Because I always hear a lot of shit about Dave Matthews. And he says, well, here's the thing. Dave Matthews, he's actually a really great singer, songwriter, a great guitarist, and he brings a lot of great musicians in to work with him. But for whatever reason, all of his fans are assholes. Okay. So I suppose if there are Dave Matthews fans out there, Benji just insulted you. So take that up with Benji. I I don't dislike you. I don't know you. <laughs> but I guess take a long, hard look at your life. Evaluate yourself. Are you an asshole? I don't know. Maybe. There's always exceptions. Yeah. At the same time, look, you were alive in the 90s and had two ears connected to a heart. It's okay. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so do you call this man Dave? That is the question. But this song does come filtering in, and it is hilarious because it lets us know this is romance. Like, all she's doing is eating a Twinkie, getting yeah. picked back up off of the highway after this dude just dropped her off, and he wants her to get him out of a kidnapping charge. And this is romance. And so he brings her to a payphone. And then it gets even more like, what the fuck? And it's amazing. So he has her program in her father's number with a 206 area code. So mm -hmm. this is when we know, okay, Seattle. so Seattle. Sure. Because that is a phone code for Seattle. He's like, okay, I just need you to tell them that the real kidnappers got away in, I don't know, some sort of like white subring or something. She's like, okay. And so she's repeating it. She's ready to say it. And then she gets on the phone. The agents pick up. And her only thing she has to say is just, he made me touch his penis. <laughs> Benicio Del Toro, or Vincent, reaches out his hand, quickly hangs up the payphone. And he's like, I what? And she's like, oops. Um... <laughs> he gets super pissed because... 
He's like, okay, I'm going back to the car. You stay here. And she's like, no. And she goes and she handcuffs herself to the dashboard of his car because she doesn't want him to leave her. Because she's like psychotic and in for this ride, right? She's just pure it. She's just reacting. Like, what next stimulus can I have? I don't want to be at this gas station. That seems boring. Fake swallowing the key. I want to be here with you. Yeah, she's fake swallowing the handcuff key. And he's like, you really don't want to be sitting next to me right now. Jesus, that's scary. And she's like, yeah, I do, though. He's like, you just accused me of sexual assault, right? He's like, like, your call just added 30 years to my prison sentence. 30 years. You turn me me into a child molester, kidnapper, rapist. (laughs) It's like, man. Once again, this is a love story. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. The romance. They're going to fall in love. Oh, you know, there's a meat cute, but then there's a, a, a meat molester. That's uh, what we got it's going. like, how did you two meet? Like, well... Oh, uh, funny story. She, yeah, it was like <laughs> this moment where she accused me, even though she had never met me before, of child molestation. And uh, I found that adorable. Uh, you know? the, the, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's strange. It's strange. It's a little strange. We get the gag of Benicio want, or Vincent wants things to look like they're okay because he sees a kid watching them have the argument, so he, he begins to kiss Emily... And I think it's dubbed in. We hear Alicia go, Mmm. Mm. <laughs> She's into it. Like, She's like, huh. Oh, well, okay. Interesting turn of events, but I'm into this. Uh, okay, fine. And the our two goons from earlier are back. They're in the city in Seattle, I assume. And they're interrupting a dinner that Harry Connick Jr. is having with this gorgeous woman, Monique. Yeah, I'm going to call them Two Guys, One Truck. So meanwhile, Two Guys, One Truck. Two Guys, One Truck. They cock block Harry Connick Jr. You never cock block Harry Connick Jr. They interrupt his dinner to tell him, hey, yeah, all the money that you owe us and the Ferrari that we're going to get our mob boss guy for his niece, that's gone. So that's a problem. Yeah, they're like, Monique, why don't you go powder your nose? Oh, for fuck's sake. Like, I'm just trying to think of like the way that I would respond to some some two assholes came up at dinner and it's like, sweetheart, why don't you go powder your nose? <laughs> what would you say? <laughs> I mean, it depends. Cause, like, If I knew the person that I was having dinner with was part of some sort of international crime circuit, like... Maybe that's something I really just don't want to fuck with. Right. <laughs> like, maybe like, I do okay. just, like, go and exit from the table. I will respect your game, and I will go powder my nose, wink, wink, and let you guys... Yeah, like, plausible deniability. This does not seem like a conversation I want to overhear. Right, like, sure. I will be back. But it is kind of fun, because she does just reappear in a little bit. Like, uh-huh. not even that long. She comes back, and she's like, all right, I went and powdered my nose. Now, like, now it's your turn to, like, leave. But, yeah, while these two dudes are there... Accusing Harry Connick Jr. of like, what are we going to do now? The mm-hmm. warehouse is burned down. Like, do you have the money? Because like they had given Harry Connick Jr. the money already for one of the stolen cars that had been in the warehouse, which was one of the Ferraris, because that Ferrari was marked to go to this random dude's niece on her 21st birthday. And could you imagine what it feels like, Benji, to turn 21 and not get a Ferrari on your birthday? I hope I never live to see the day. It's a terrifying concept. We've all been there, you know, that moment where we turn 21 and we just have that moment of fear and terror and disappointment that we might not awake to that Ferrari in the driveway. You know, there are first world problems, and then there's first percenter problems, and yeah. that's what that is. 
That is a specific. And so once again, it's like this weird pitch of privilege. And it's like, I mean, I think that's more supposed to be a tongue in cheek joke. Unlike Emily's privilege, which we're supposed to somehow sympathize with. This poor girl just doesn't get her uh-huh. dad's attention or something. I don't know. Yeah. Neither of them work as points of empathy. <laughs> no, they do that. not. No. And yes. And as Emily and Vincent are driving along, Emily gets a call from Uncle Ray, Christopher Walken, who reveals that he knows who Vincent is. And so the plot thickens because now Vincent knows that uh, the Uncle Ray is on the case. And that's a little scary, I guess. Yeah. So lots of people are pursuing these two. We've got Christopher Walken is on his own little quest to get Emily back and keep her out of trouble. We've got the two dudes, one truck guys that are after Vincent to get their money back for this prepaid stolen Ferrari. And then we have Harry Connick Jr. that's just kind of along for the ride with the two guys, one truck, because Mm -hmm. he's the middleman here. So he's also on the hook. And then we got Alexander T. Hope out there somewhere that just, like, doesn't give a fuck about any of this because that's his role. Right on. It sounds very mixed up. It does sound all mixed up, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) This is the song that I think we both thought was another Dave Matthews song. (laughs) I totally thought this was a Dave Matthews song. It's not. I'm like, why are there so many Dave Matthews band songs in this movie? That's so strange. But no, this is just some other song that kind of has that same cadence uh, rhythmically and musically to it. So to set this up, Vinny drops Emily off at a motel and convinces her to unhook herself with the key from the dashboard and just go into the motel so that she can just get out of his life already Mm -hmm. so that he can continue up to his cabin up north. And the song, as she egresses from his vehicle that starts to filter in, is once again letting us know... This is a rom-com, so we need rom-com music that these two are starting to feel something for each other. We're not seeing that on screen. We're not no. seeing it with the chemistry. We're nope. not seeing it with the dialogue. But the music, the music it tells us in- that shit is all mixed up. <laughs> oh, oh, so good. Yes. This is also in this car. This is There's this bit where Vinicio is like, he's knocking back this bottle of Jack Daniels that he got. And he offers it to Emily at first, but he's like, wait a minute, how old are you? Twelve? Old enough? And just... He's like, if you say so. If you say so. The old enough comes later. Right now he's just, if you say so. If you say so, man. So we don't ever get a confirmation on Emily's age, but yeah, she's gonna take in some alcohol, go into the motel. She takes a shower. And so, meanwhile, this All Mixed Up song is still playing. (laughs) Yeah, this is not actually a Dave Matthews song. This is by a band called the Red House Painters. It also was everywhere in the 90s, but there were a lot of songs that were just these one-hit mm-hmm. pop rom-com songs that just permeated the radio waves. I heard the song a lot. I just never knew it was by a band called the Red House Painters. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. But we get that classic rom-com, like the shower. She's oh, showering. Wipes the condensation away off the mirror to look at herself, man, and really take it all in. Yeah, exactly. Reflexive <laughs> introspection, you know? Vincent continues on up to his cabin because he's like, now, twice now, I've tried to get this bitch out of my life. So I'm up at my cabin. But he gets to the cabin and Walken, he knows the address to this cabin. So he shows up too. And he's like, God damn it. I thought I was past this. We get Yeah, we get some dialogue between Uncle Ray and Vincent. And you realize that Benicio Del Toro 
and Christopher Walken have more chemistry than Del Toro does with Silverstone. So basically, they do. Any you take any two random characters in this movie and sit them down and have them talk, they are probably going to have more chemistry with each other than Silverstone and Del Toro do in this movie. Yeah, and Christopher Walken and Alicia Silverstone have some dirty, awesome chemistry in this, too, which we find out in just a second, because we get another catch-up on the plot that Walken is there because he wants Emily, and Vincent's like, well, I dropped her off at a motel, and so... Uncle Ray's like, okay, let's go get her. So they go back to the motel because this poor Vincent just is in the Sisyphusian nightmare of just <laughs> having to come back to this woman. She, meanwhile, is at a diner. And this diner just has is, uh... a lot of hats. It wears a lot of hats, literally, because it's just decorated in all of these different baseball hats the that hats are on the of wall. All the truckers who had heart attacks. From eating the greasy food here. I like that idea. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that this is just how this actual diner that they're filming in decided to decorate the diner because it has that vibe. Some diner outside of Vancouver just had this look, man. They're like, yeah, we're going to film here. Yeah, so she sits down. She's looking out the window. This kind waitress comes up and senses that something's wrong. And she's like, it's a man, right? It's always a man. And then she goes off after filling the coffee. And then these two men do show up at the diner, so that works out. Vincent and Christopher Walken, they sit down across from her, and Vinny is still trying to just clear his name. He's <laughs> like, like, would you please just tell him I didn't make you touch my penis, please? Yeah, she's like, he didn't do any of that stuff. All right, he didn't do it, yeah. And he's like, thank you, thank you. And then they're like, they both just turn to him, and they're like, go sit over there. And they just like point <laughs> to it. It's booth. like... Turn him into a total bitch boy. Just, like, go over there and eat some waffles or something. Yeah, so he does. I'm like, yeah, now I see your value. Like, you're just getting (laughs) drug around. I like it. You listen. You follow directions. Like, good boy. And so he sits down, and Emily and Uncle Ray have a conversation where Uncle Ray sort of susses out a little bit of what happened. The, The initial thing seems to be that she kidnapped herself. He assumes it's because she's with Vinny, and then it's some sort of lover's ploy to get a lot of money. So he's not completely up on all the details, but he knows that Emily is not in kidnapping danger. He's like, okay, what can we do about this? Because the thing is, is what you've done are federal felonies, <laughs> multiple felonies. <laughs> like This did not occur to her at all. Yeah. What a stronger indication of privilege that she just did not know she was committing all these felonies. Nor does she care once yeah. she learns oh, no, that she is. Right? What the fuck? She's like, the only thing I care about is getting daddy to love me. And he's like, well, I care about keeping you out of prison. Who can we pin this on instead? <laughs> because ethics, not his strong suit. Not so much, no. Yeah. So they're like, well, what about this poor dude that's sitting over here at the booth eating his waffles? <laughs> Little Vinny, like, can we pin it on him? She's like, no. He's like, why not? He's a thief. She's like, he's an innocent thief. It's like, well, I mean, that's an oxymoronic kind of description, but fine. So she decides, no, I care about Vincent because all of those songs that were playing extra diegetically earlier, like they told me we had something. Dave Matthews told me that we have something, so I can't just, I can't. Yeah, I can't deny Dave Matthews. You know, (laughs) Dave Matthews says we should be together. I gotta listen to that. It's out there in the universe. So she takes Dave's advice and she goes to get Vinny out of this diner situation, but she does it in the dirtiest hot way. Well, 
the, the strange thing is, in the midst of this conversation, Vincent stands up and says, Hey, can we get going over here, man? I'm just tired of tossing salad. Know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And no. you're like, what? Tossing salad? Now, you may have heard that term before. You go to Urban Dictionary, tossing salad. It's, it's analingus. You, you, there's cunnilingus, analingus, other side. I first heard this term. It's the first time I can remember hearing this term was from a Chris Rock stand-up comedy special, uh, Bring the Pain. And I was wondering, wait, when did that special come out? And I looked it up. The special that he made this term popular in aired on HBO June 1st, 1996. This movie was filming in June of 1996. Oh. Either the writers or Del Toro saw that comedy special and threw it in here. I guarantee you that's what happened. Wait, so the term tossing salad originated with Chris Rock, or was it a... It was popularized by Chris Rock. Slang prior to that. Okay, I like... Yeah, it would would have been slang prior to that, but I'm almost certain that it was popularized by Chris Rock in June of 1996, and that someone working on this movie saw that comedy special and just decided to throw it in because it sounds so ridiculous. Yeah, well, she decides, I need to save... Vinny, because he's tired of tossing salad, I suppose. <laughs> you know what I I'm mean. Like, are you? Like, yeah. What you, no, I, I don't understand fully what you mean in this context right now. Yeah, there's actually a lot of weird things that are going to get said at this diner because Christopher Walken is also going to go to another, like, homophobic place where he's trying to keep her out of jail because jails are full of sociopathic gang-banging lesbians from hell. And... I'm like, okay, so in context, super homophobic statement. Out of context, I would watch that movie. (laughs) This sounds like a fun time. (laughs) I was like, sweet, sign me up for those sociopathic gangbanging lesbians from hell. Like, those are all my favorite things in one sentence. Now, she decides, like, I need to get Vinny out of this situation. Mm -hmm. And how she does it is she uses her womenly wiles to accuse Uncle Ray of domestic abuse so she throws her coffee at him adopts a southern accent which once again i'm like did we have to go southern for this like i see in the 90s why she thinks okay i'm going to create a domestic abuse scene and i'm gonna go into a southern accent in order to sell it and be like i was too young when i married you this man right here he done me wrong he beat me and i'm like you're in seattle (laughs) just a reminder yeah okay Seattle, why would you adopt this word Southern accent? This might, in a subtle way, be speaking to Emily's position of privilege or how blind she is that she just thinks, uh, oh, domestic abuse uh, and marrying young. This is the thing that the poors have to deal with. And the poors talk like this. As if this is California, not Kentucky. See, she learned that attitude in Clueless. That's oh. what I'm saying. That ends. Like, there's a wedding, and, like, for a second, you think it shares. And she's like, as if. Like, I'm only 16, and this is California, not Kentucky. So it's like this idea. Yeah, the South, they're All just full of, you know, like, wife-beating underaged wives or whatever. So... Yeah, it, yeah, it probably is like in her state of mind, but it's like, mm-hmm. what is going on? And yet at the same time, like this is probably the most chemistry fueled moment of the movie is this idea of <laughs> Alicia Silverstone married to this fur wearing Christopher Walken. I was like, that's working for me. I'm just saying. Oh, uh, but they escape. Uh, the these truckers. Well, the thing is, these truckers all like corner Christopher Walken because they're coming to the rescue of this young woman in danger. 
Yeah. And she's like pulling Vincent out like because he yeah. keeps like he doesn't really want to run away from this guy who he previously doesn't have mm-hmm. any kind of violent rapport with. And so he's like, if I run away, that might be bad. So she's like dragging him out. She's like, come on, Vincent, come on. We got to go. And he's just like standing there. And then she's like dragging him out by his collar. And so they get to the car. Yeah. Another issue is that uh, Uncle Ray has taken a bag of money, like of uh, $200,000 in cash that Vincent has. And he's holding on to that. So Vincent knows like, OK, I, if I lose track of Uncle Ray, I lose track of all of my money. So that's a problem. So that might also be why he doesn't want to leave immediately. But leave they do. They run off. Yeah, they off. escape. They escape. Uh, they hitch a ride on a glass truck or one of those trucks that holds panes of glass, if you've ever seen those. Sure. Yeah, as they do. They ride it for an eighth of a mile, and that's their getaway, and <laughs> off they go. Yeah, so they're going to make their escape to another extra diegetic song that lets us know it's up. Uh-huh. Which is One Headlight, because that starts to play. And this is the song I actually adore this song this song is written by baby Bob Dylan Bob Dylan's son Jacob Dylan who was the front singer of the wallflowers and this was a song slash album that everybody in the 90s I kind of remember had or had like at least seen the cover of because it was just everywhere it was that navy background with the yellow stars on it Mm It seemed like everybody owned the CD, but they only knew this one song from the CD. It was one of those situations where before you had individual, like things like YouTube or Spotify or like places where you could just buy the single track, like you had to buy the whole CD. And this song, according to Jacob Dylan, when interviewed about it, he's like, I tend to write with a lot of metaphors and images, so people take them literally. The song's meaning is all in the first verse. It's about the death of ideas. And I was like, okay. that's kind of hilarious in context Fair enough. of this movie. Like, I don't think this movie meant, like, it seems more just like it's this happy 90s, like, slightly romantic song. But I'm like, I love this idea that at this point in the movie, you're like, what is going on? And they <laughs> play this song that just is about the death of ideas. <laughs> I'm like, I think this is just a happy coincidence, but awesome. And Emily, meanwhile, has also done a slight costume change, oh, only boy. the tiniest bit. And I really love this decision because she's on the run. So mm-hmm. apparently she had a black tank top underneath her lipstick T-shirt. So she's still back in her same pants, but she has the black tank top now under the gray camo. So it's just it's changing up the visual aesthetic just a tiny bit, but in a believable way of what she might have had on her person. And so that was actually pretty cool. She also has some John Deere trucker hat that she's wearing that I guess she stole from the diner. Like, I don't know. Well, yeah, that's you're invisible at that point because they might see her like, is that her? Like, no, that girl didn't wear a trucker hat, so it can't be her. Oh, my God. Also, side note, I side note. did not look up more details on this, but I... I do have questions. So apparently the yellow leather jacket that she wore along with the black suede pants and the lipstick print t-shirt was sold at an auction to Paul Ronson, who's like an actor stand-up comedian Uh, for $890. Random? Okay. Why does this man want the clothes that she wore in this movie? Why were they being auctioned off in the first place? Like, questions. I'm going to look into that more and maybe we can 
trivia fact that. So if I find more information on that, you can find it at Cinema of Cruelty on Twitter and Instagram. We'll try to get to the bottom we'll of this. We'll see if that guy's on Twitter, too. Maybe we can, like, post that question out there. What the fuck, Mr. Rawson? What? Why? Just harass this man on social media. Like, why did you buy this jacket back in 1997? I mean, that's how I get a lot of the important answers in life is from harassing people on social media. So Stalking and harassing. Yeah, yeah that's how the world works. <laughs> Moving along, they go to a hotel that kind of reminds me of the hotel from Twin Peaks. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Sit down, they meet Harry Connick Jr., and Emily drinks a lot of scotch. You know, Vinny's just like, ha she drinks some scotch. That's cute. And Harry Connick's like, this is a problem. You have a problem on your hands, sir. Uh, no, no, man, it's all good. Yeah, she downs this older man's full scotch on the rocks, takes the $20 that... Harry Connick Jr. put down for the waitress. She's like, gotta go buy toothpaste. And she just takes off. Toothpaste. Sure. Yeah, Vinny cracks up because at this point, the music has told them that they are fully falling in love. (laughs) Harry Connick Jr. just rolls his eyes and he's like, yeah, that's real cute. You're like Bonnie and Clyde. You don't see this as a problem? And Vinny's like, nah, Dave Matthews told me it's fine. (laughs) And then we cut to the scene later that night when they're back at the hotel room and they have this bonding shot or Mm. the bonding sequence that rom-com montage of sorts all happening in one room over the course of a night where emily is still downing mini bar shots so like once again this chick is like 18 at most and Uh she just has a super alcohol problem already not to mention these are mini bar shots. You're racking up like $80 worth of liquor going through all these mini bar shots. Come on, man. Yeah, she's super rich, though. She doesn't care. I guess that's and true. She's yeah. also not going to pay for it anyway. Uh, also true. That. Rich and won't pay for it. Yeah, that's how you keep your money, you know? <laughs> and she calls her father to make more demands because she feels like she is in this position to do that. Vinny comes up. And he gets her life story, where Emily feels unloved and her father is this unfeeling sociopath. She calls him an unfeeling sociopath. And I'm like, Um, you totally are too, though. Like, let's (laughs) let's keep this in context. Takes one to know one here, you know? Meanwhile, like, in the background, they're playing this nature special about hyenas, like, attacking their prey. (laughs) I'm like, heavy-handed metaphor? I don't Uh, know. But it doesn't quite work. But at the same time, it seems pointed. Who knows? She doesn't like watching it. Yeah. She's like, ah, turn it turn off, it turn off. it off. And he just turns the TV to the side instead of turning it off so that we mm. get to watch this predatory exchange while they're also kind of getting together on the bed. Vinny has this seduction technique that is so weirdly interesting to me where he kind of puts his head down like he's some sort of like bull ready to charge some kind of red cape and he just goes come on come on come on come on come on come on come <laughs> this on, is go to and he's gonna do that a couple times throughout the movie and it's kind of endearing it does kind of work because like everything about i would fall for it but he says that's in this movie is working yeah. even though it shouldn't but yeah, they drunk bond drunk about bond. wanting money mm-hmm. and not wanting money. Well, it's annoying because Vincent explains, uh, oh, what I want to do is I want to take my money. I want to open up some karaoke bars in Brazil. That would be awesome. I'm like, okay, that's an interesting thing to aspire to. And her response is, oh, you want to work and you want to make money just so you can use it to make more money? Vince, that's not going to make you happy. I've had money all my life and I'm not happy. And that's where I get a little pissed off. I just thought, okay, 
Asshole, you're coming from a very different place than him. Don't tell someone who doesn't have money that money is not going to make them happy. Okay, maybe we'll make them happy, but at least I'll have some security in my fucking life. So you can buy food, you know? Yeah, like, Jesus. Because I guarantee you this bitch would also not be happy without money. Right. Oh, absolutely. If she gave away all of her money and had access to no wealth whatsoever, yeah, she would be pretty pissed off. And I don't know how intentional that is in the storytelling to show us like what a an asshole place of privilege this character is coming from, or if that's meant to be banter of some sort or commentary on how money does not bring happiness or something like that. Yeah, it's that same confusing thing about the rest of this movie where she is supposed <laughs> to be our protagonist, and yet we're really not making this chick super accessible <laughs> on any level. We're also creating this really interesting gross and problematic to most and thus awesome and problematic for me relationship here because she's just laid out all of the daddy issues she has Mm -hmm. like she even describes it that way like her father doesn't love her she wants his attention and then the next lead into that is to tell vincent that he doesn't need to be drunk to kiss her that basically he can be her new daddy she just wants attention from these men he's like i'm not that drunk and then they kiss so that's happening weird cut to next day (laughs) they're sitting on a rock yeah on a rock out in the lake and she has ink on her shirt inexplicably i feel like they probably just got ink on her shirt somehow and they had to build it in because (laughs) it doesn't add anything to the story she's just picking at her shirt that has this big ink stain and she's like i was playing with a pen and it broke you know and i was like okay that's a weird detail to include very strange Then he's looking at her and she starts asking him these questions like if he likes different parts of her, right? Like, do you like my tummy? And he's like, yeah. She's like, Or do you like my shirt? Yeah. Do you like my tummy? Do you like my smile? Right. And his answers are yes. So she concludes, then you must like me then slash all of me. Um, Not necessarily, girl. Like just because he likes your ass or your shirt doesn't mean he likes you. But... This is what they call a fallacy of composition. Oh, is it? If you want an official term for what's happening here, yeah, it's a fallacy of composition. Get some terminology out here. Why not? Yes. I, I just love this like kind of conceptual term. A, a fallacy of composition is really just like an informal fallacy that arises when one infers that something is true of the whole from the fact that it is true of some of the parts of the whole. So... It's a, it's a good detective term, oh, okay. really. Very but it nice. also applies here, that she's like, you like these pieces of my body, so you must think I'm pretty great overall. <laughs> it's like, nah. Uh, Not necessarily. Uh, but yeah. then again, maybe, maybe so, because the music is back. Well, we start to hear this guitar music and these lyrics, Into your heart, I'll beat again, sweet like candy to my soul, sweet you rock and sweet you roll, lost for you, I'm so lost for you. And suddenly I realized... These are Dave lyrics. Dave? Dave Matthews, hardcore fans call him Dave. (laughs) Oh, excuse me for being alive in the 90s and having two ears connected to a heart. Yeah, I realize I, I used that clip from earlier. It bears repeating. Yeah. Just like this song, apparently, bears repeating. I know! This is the same song! It's, this, it's Crash Into Me again that they're playing here, and I'm like, why are you playing Crash Into Me again? Aren't the rights to a Dave Matthews song so expensive that you can only buy the one <laughs> and repeat they it? They license to the one song they're going to get their money for. <laughs> we pay for Dave, and we're going to get some goddamn Dave in here. Dave is the overseer of this entire film. He wants this relationship to happen. 
This is the song of their romance. Oh. Hypnotizing them to fall in love. And <laughs> the truck drivers, though, the truck driver mobsters are fucking over this entirely and decide to kidnap them both out of this hotel. Yeah. Truck driver's over this bullshit. Watkins over this bullshit. <laughs> Alexander, the father, is also over this bullshit because basically everyone's like, we need to end this movie yeah. somehow. Right? We've heard we've and... heard Crash Into Me twice now. We got to wrap this shit up. Come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we've gone to the well as deep as we can go. <laughs> and so the truck drivers are going to kidnap both Vincent and Emily. They show up to do that because they need their 200 grand back and or the Ferrari for their boss's niece's 21st birthday. They need one of these two things and they don't have either of these two things yet so they are kidnapping emily meanwhile that 200 grand is gone from their possession because uncle ray has taken this 200 grand so they have emily locked up in another warehouse somewhere and they send vincent to go ask alexander for more money alexander is like Bitch, I already paid a million for my daughter once this week. I'm not doing it again. Like, you're going to have to find another solution to your problem. Wow. Because it's not going to be me. Oh. And, and he's like standing in front of his giant yacht as he's having this discussion. Mm-hmm. He turns around. He gets back on that boat. Good and Uncle God. Ray's like, wait, man, what if I don't have a Christopher Walken impression Ugh. impersonation? So he's just going to sound like me. Wait, man, maybe we should check this out. You know, maybe Emily's actually in trouble this time. Alexander's like, you can if you want to. I don't give a fuck. That's on you. (laughs) So Ray stays behind. He doesn't get on that yacht. Vincent meets up with Stick, one of the truck driving mobsters at a bar. And they have a little confrontation. And suddenly Ray shows up. There's a protocol with this kind of thing. I get the money. You stay here. Right. I don't. For you. What, Vincent? He's my friend. That's right. He's my bodyguard. He's my bodyguard. Bodyguard. Buddy, yes. Buddy. That's one thing we haven't covered so far, but throughout this entire time, since Vincent has met Ray, he just keeps calling him bodyguard. And bodyguard. it's great. Super great. My favorite thing anybody's ever called somebody in a film. Bodyguard. They're, yeah, that's what I appreciate about Benicio Del Toro. The man has such a delightfully unique way of pronouncing some things. Bodyguard being one of them. Not bodyguard. Yeah. Bodyguard. It's got a certain cadence that's fun. How but, does it feel, Yeah, stick? I guess Alexander did give him the money back that he owed him, and that was it. Not the full mill, but he's like, okay, I will give you what was stolen from you, your 200 grand. So he does have that in his bag, which is what he goes to show sticks. But that's not enough now, because they want interest, right? They're getting greedy. <laughs> don't know why. They should really all rates. just walk away from this shit. They, they charge, should, and uh, they don't. Yeah, whatever. All three of them, they go back to the place where... Alicia Silverstone is being held. And while they're going back there, uh, Emily, she's a wily hostage. She breaks out of the room that she's in, starts climbing on some rafters. So, you know, she's self-sufficient. She's pretty cool that way. Yeah, she does get herself out of situations. She knows how to get out of trunks. She knows how to get out of locked rooms inside of warehouses. She's crawling all over these beams in her 90s platform shoes. So... Mm respect she does have this badass rebellion it's just too bad that she doesn't quite come around to be an endearing character (laughs) and there's a fight that goes down we get some walking shtick a little bit oh i really enjoy this color but do i need the horsepower on this one i mean what do you think 
he's doing his thing. And they overcome them because Emily drives a forklift through a door at some point and the cops show up and they pin it all on the mobsters and it's all nice. It's all nicely tied up. Yeah, shenanigans ensue, and it's all wrapped up nicely because we've got, like, you know, the two dudes in one truck who ultimately did end up kidnapping her, so no big deal. Uh Uh-huh. That's true. There's honesty all around. It's very good. And Emily heads back to see her dad very briefly, who basically just says, Okay, you're safe. I'm heading out. Peace. Yeah, she's like, okay, I've been trying to seek out your love and attention, and not even this got it. So you know what? I'm going to have a moment of what I think is personal growth and move out with this one single leather duffel bag in my new car, because really, I have found another man to pay attention to me. (laughs) And so she drives the car back to a parking garage, maybe the same parking garage as the beginning of the movie. Who knows? Depends on how many parking garages there are in Vancouver slash Seattle that they were filming this at. And Yeah, it does look like the same one. Yeah, and inside the trunk. Oh, it's Vincent who was hiding in that trunk. For probably a really a long, long time. Yeah, because wow. That... At least a full day has passed because they picked them up from the warehouse and it was daylight and then she's saying goodbye to her dad at night. So he's been in that trunk for a while. For at least a f- several hours. Yeah, she opens the trunk up, he sits up and she hands him a bottle of wine, which I would just be like, I need some fucking water right now and I need to get to a bathroom. Uh, I have so many other needs than just wine at this exact moment after being in this trunk for many hours. But what are you going to do? Wine, Wine's good. It's his favorite kind of wine. It's like from 1991, they chat, and we're reminded that it's all mixed up. Yeah, reprise again. So yeah, we get this lowbrow, she's lowbrow slumming it because she's drinking a 91 vintage wine. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, it's all mixed up. It's all mixed up. This fucking song shows up again. This movie repeats its songs so much. You don't see that very often in films. You do not, no. It's... Actually kind of interesting. Yeah. It becomes a certain melodic repraise. And it actually reminded me of so last week when Robbie was on with us talking about musical scores as a driving vehicle of storytelling. This is not what he meant here, but it was hard not to think of that in yeah. that it really is the music in some ways that are forcing the narrative to take shape and happen, even though they don't actually impact. Like, the lyrics are not being sung by the people on screen. The r- lyrics were not written for this story. But in just this weird mm-hmm. little way of, we should take this as a romance because we have Dave Matthews pulling for these guys and, <laughs> over and over again with the help of the Red House painters. They're what, making the shit happen. And what they want to point out that... Like we said, movies don't often repeat songs, but when they do, they're actually kind of careful with it. One of my favorite movies is that 1999 Thomas Crown Affair, Pierce Brosnan, uh, Rene Russo. And in that, we hear snippets of Nina Simone's Sinner Man, like throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. But Sinner Man 1 is it's a 10 minute song, so they use different parts of it throughout, and they never repeat the part of the song that they're using. But in this movie, we just get the chorus of these songs over and over again. So it's like, yeah, we heard this part before, man. It's like, imagine you went to a karaoke bar and you sang the same song twice. You don't do that, man. That's weird. 
It is weird, but it kind of makes this film just stand out a little <laughs> bit more as this really weird moment in forgotten cinema. Because not only is it this rom-com that's repeating some top chart singles from the late mid-90s, <laughs> it's doing it to a film that has Benicio Del Toro, Christopher Walken, <laughs> Harry Connick Jr., and Alicia Silverstone in a sociopaths in love rom-com. Because how we're going to conclude here is that he's once again, Benicio, or Vincent, once again is going to do his come on, come on, come on, come on thing with his forehead lowered. They'll touch foreheads. They start kissing. They go back into the trunk. Benicio Del Toro does a really actually impressive fun thing with his legs that are all of a sudden miles long mm -hmm. as he reaches his legs up to pull down the trunk of the car on top of them so they can get some private alone time in the middle of this parking garage locked in their trunk with a bottle of open wine. And yeah, all I could think was like, you are really limited in the positions you can take when you start fucking in this trunk that I don't. Yeah, sex in cars is already constraining. Yeah. It's never been something that has held a lot of appeal to me. And then you throw in the trunk as an option, and you're like, hmm. Yeah. It's not impossible. It's just constrained. Yeah. I mean, like, maybe if the trunk was still open, but, like, no. This is like a coupe with a closed lid. And so the temperature <laughs> in there, the airflow in there, the spatial constraints... Like, it seems a little miserable, but, like, there's sociopaths in love, so I guess they're going to make it work. Uh, you think, like, oh, this is going to be really cool. No, it's not. It's not going to be cool. The novelty will wear off fast is all that I'm saying. And they're stuck in the trunk. They are, and they're now back in that trunk. So, an aside here, we're going to have a little public service announcement, special episode, Bolton, or whatever. The Cinema of Cruelty now presents How to Get Out of a Car Trunk. Yeah, because... So I grew up at that right special time at the right special school that for some reason... Special being the key word here. Am I right? <laughs> my um, I, my uh, age bracket uh, and my peers as... So adults are going to want to kidnap you and they're going to want to put you in trunks. So we're going <laughs> to teach you, young children, how to get out of a trunk if you happen to be locked in a trunk in a potential hostage situation. And this stuck with me as a child. This was an early childhood oh, lesson I learned. So I'm going to share this all with you. So the ways to get out of a trunk if you were stuck in a trunk. Option one is to pull the trunk release. So cars made after 2002, they're real easy to get out of because there's actually a law now, a national law that says that all trunks have to have trunk releases. They usually are glow-in-the-dark handles that are located near the trunk latch. Sometimes a cord or a button or a toggle switch, but usually a handle. And you just pull it, and the trunk pops open. So shit's easy after 2002. It's kind of like car thieving, right? It's a mm -hmm. whole different game after ah. 2000 to 2002. But if you're stuck in the 90s, oh. like this movie, and you have one of those sweet old cars, the other things you can do. Option two, pull the trunk release cable. Most cars have a little latch around the driver's seat that pops your trunk open. That doesn't just happen by magic. There's a cable <laughs> that runs to the trunk to make that happen. So sometimes you might have to pull the carpet up on the floor or the cardboard paneling off of the side, but generally it's going to be on the driver's side of the car. 
So search along for that cable, perhaps. Okay. All right. And if you can find it, pulling the cable toward the front or side of the car will pull up the release handle to the trunk because it's a little mechanical cable. So you just act like that little switch and you pull it. Okay, that's all well and good, but what if I can't find the release cable? Okay, so if you can't find the release cable, option three, pry the latch open. So if you can't find the release cable but have located the latch, then your best bet may be to pry it open. If there's a screwdriver or crowbar or pliers in the trunk, that really helps you. Or maybe even like a pencil, anything that can help you just wedge into that little latch and just try to pop it open. This is especially good on real old cars because like the mechanical springs are not always super up to snuff or very industrial in those. So you can generally try to like pry right into that latch. Oh, okay, fair enough. You know, maybe the cable, maybe the latch. What if I can't find the cable or the latch? Yes, indeed, a conundrum. So, option four, escape through the back seat. If you've been abducted, you might want to wait until the driver actually leaves the car. No, Maybe, like, parked at a yeah, gas yeah, okay. station or something. You know, like, I mean, use your brain. They right? might but, be doing something else. They have to do something else at some point, so yeah. Although sometimes, like, if it is actually a car that has an easy latch in the back to get out of the back seat, if they're driving, it might not be the worst thing to just kind of, like, get into that back seat and just fuck with them while they're driving. But if you're also just accidentally got stuck in your trunk for some reason, maybe you're a sociopath that's having a wine sex party in your trunk and you accidentally get stuck. I don't know your life. Like, <laughs> the back seats of cars generally fold down revealing the trunk. Now, some of these buttons to release those seats are on the side of like the actual back seat. So that can be a little tricky, but sometimes those buttons actually wrap around to the back. So check for that. And also sometimes they aren't super latched, especially on older cars that have those bucket fold down seats. If you kick really hard and you push, sometimes you can actually dislodge that and just push down that front seat or the, that back seat to climb in to the back seat. And then you're not in the trunk anymore. So that's great. No, oh, but London, I just get the feeling that if I'm ever making love in a trunk with a bottle of wine, a sociopath, and I'm not going to be able to find the car latch or the cable and the back seats don't fold down, what is that it? Am I just stuck in there? Or what are my other options? Okay, so first of all, never say making love again. <laughs> Second of all, you have option five. Push out the brake lights. Brake lights are accessible from the inside of the trunk. Chances are there is a panel in front of them to protect it, so they're not just hanging out there. But if you pry that panel off and the felt and whatnot that is protecting that brake light, then you can get to the good stuff, the wires, little plastic stuff in the light bulb. With some car models, you can just kick that completely out. And then they'll just fall off the back of the vehicle and there'll be a little square hole. And if you're in motion, then you just wave your hand all about. And you make crazy hand signals to try to get the person behind you to go, hey, there's a person in that trunk. Now, this is, of course, relying on the decency of another person to be like, maybe that's a problem and to actually do something about it. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. So you want to kind of hang out and wave your hand around for a while until somebody helps you. But eventually, hopefully, somebody will be like, maybe it's a problem that a hand is flailing outside the back of that car. This won't get you out of the trunk immediately, but it will call attention to the fact that you are in the trunk. Mm. Pulling out the wires also does just help you. So if you can't like completely kick out the light, 
pulling out the wires will make those lights go off. So if it's at night, you increase the chances of that car getting pulled over. So that's helpful too. Well, okay. But let's assume that uh, at the end of this movie, they've just fucked and, you know, Vincent fell asleep. Emily is left awake. She can't search for all these things, so she just doesn't care, but she... She doesn't really care about personal property too much. She likes to destroy things. Is there a way to force her way out of the vehicle? There is, sometimes. So this also depends on what tools you have available in the trunk. But I also find this one to be one of the most creative, not necessarily creative solutions, but the one that I don't normally go to and think about. So this is option six. Use the car jack to pop up the trunk lid. Huh. People who are prepared for that flat tire. Generally, underneath the trunk, there's that compartment that has the spare tire. A lot of people will keep their car jack in that compartmental space as well. And you can actually use that car jack to sort of set it and crank the jack up under the trunk lid and pop it open. Oh, okay. That's so. actually, yeah, and generally the car jack is in the trunk. That's generally where you keep that. So Probably that's kind what's... of a fun, weird little thing. Because, yeah, it is designed to have enough pressure to actually lift up your car. So it certainly has enough pressure to kind of try to crank up and pop up that trunk. Uh, well, that makes total sense. If I... this still doesn't work, oh, if all else fails, uh-huh. option seven is to just flail, kick, and create as much noise to attract attention as possible. Because trunks, they will bounce. They will move. They are not soundproof. Eventually, someone might hear you, unless you're parked in some sort of garage, basement, storage, or warehouse where no one is around. So, if you can't figure out something after all eight of these options, then... Mm. Or seven. I guess eight is if you have your cell phone on you now in a post-2002 world. Right. But that yeah. shouldn't be a problem because in a post-2002 world, like, you just have the emergency release, you know, pop on the trunk. But if all else fails, like, then I, I guess you're screwed. Yeah. I don't know. Then you regret being a sociopath that drinks wine and fucks in trunks. Yeah. That, that's just on you at that point, I guess. But those are all the options that these two have at the very end of this movie. After they're done fucking and drinking the wine in that trunk, those eight ways are methods they can use to escape from the vehicle they find themselves in at the very end of this 1997 film. Yes. Excess Baggage. This public service announcement was brought to you by the moral panic of the 1980s. <laughs> You know, if there, there were those, and I felt like almost every PSA at the end of some shows, there always be one, no matter if it was G.I. Joe, Winnie the Pooh, Sonic the Hedgehog, there was always a PSA somewhere that tried to tell me, look, an adult is going to want to touch you at some point. You need to be ready for that. They're going to want to put you in that trunk. They're going to take you away. They're going to hold you hostage. And when they do, you need to light some dirty rags on fire and don't fall for the Twinkie. Just don't. We learned all sorts of stuff in this one like, <laughs> program on like hostage negotiations, like what to do when you are in a hostage negotiation situation. And even if the kidnappers seem like they're going to let you see their face, like don't because your survival rate goes down a mm -hmm. certain percentage, like a real sharp percentage if you see your captors' faces. Like it was a whole course. Yeah. It affected my subsequent development. And if a million dollars has already been put towards you one time that week, 
you got to wait at yeah. least. <laughs> then you're out of luck. I mean, wait at least a week. It's just common sense. Nobody needs to tell you that. That's just basic logic. Alexander, the rich guy, he says, like, I already spent a million dollars this week. So next week, that's a different story. He might yeah, be. Yeah, like, hold on to her. Yeah. Yeah. Either that or it also might imply that, like, he's already done this, like, multiple times. Like, there's just been multiple <laughs> kidnapping attempts. And it's like, uh, like, wait, what day of the month is it? Yeah, it's not on the budget this month. Like, oh. try again, you know, later, I guess. Just hold on to her for a little while. <sighs> Get back to you. So. So. Yeah, the movie that increased inflation for all actress salaries everywhere. Excess baggage right here. There so you go. that in of itself is like a big moment in Hollywood industry history. So it's it's bizarre that it's this film. It's super bizarre. <laughs> top five. Top five. Top five. My honorable mention goes out to the city of Vancouver where this was filmed. And looking into the different spots that in Vancouver they used for this reminded me of really how often Vancouver is used in for filming. If there's a great... Uh, what is the the YouTube channel Everything a Painting? Some of the more famous uh, YouTube like video essays has a great video essay I think called Vancouver Never Plays Itself and details how often Vancouver is used uh, to stand in for in this case Seattle or often Say everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. It's in, it's kind of crazy how often it, it, that happens. Yeah, my favorite thing is like in Supernatural using Vancouver to really pretty much represent every state in the U.S. Wow. throughout the course of that show. So, <laughs> what up, Vancouver? Very nice. My number five goes to Harry Connick Jr., who plays a, you know, a supporting role in this film. And, I mean, what even happens to him at the end of the movie? Do we lose track of him at some point? What happens to Harry Connick Jr.'s character in this thing? Uh, it's not revisited, yeah. I don't think. How about that? He just goes away. Never just goes away, yeah. except for Harry Connick Jr. did. I guess so. It's a small role in this, but watching this, I begin to think, man, he's just like super charming and he's delightful. And he keeps saying gosh over and over again in this movie. He does. Like, That's a joke or a, a gag. Even the gangsters are gosh. like, we come at you with guns blazing and all you have to say is gosh? Come on, man. Yeah, he's a little khaki wearing, gosh saying. <laughs> Also a car Fine salesman. dining little asshole. <laughs> go figure. You're uh, you're you're, you're you go say thanks. Uh, my honorable mention goes to Harry Connick Jr. and his little Ferrari humping ways. All right, he it's hum- just a presence. He humps it's a good fun. Ferrari. It's true. My number five goes to Christopher Walken. All right, he's Christopher Walken in this. <laughs> yeah, <he's- laughs> he is. <laughs> He's quintessential Christopher Walken. He showed up in this really random, random movie. I've heard stories about him where he just he doesn't turn down roles. Like just whatever it is, like whatever's offered to him for a time slot, he's like, all right, I'm going to do that. Whatever it might be. You know, if it's a Steven Spielberg movie or Kangaroo Jack, he'll take it. I respect that attitude. It's a similar attitude of Ray Weiss and Nicolas Cage. I love him for it. Like, let's just do it. That is that is fair. We need a movie with those three teaming up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my number four goes to the music, because it just tried so hard. This music in the movie, whether it be the score by John Lurie or these Dave Matthews, et cetera, songs, et, Dave Matthews et al., <laughs> 
<laughs> soundtrack we have in this film that's just trying so damn hard to convince us that what we're watching is romantic. You know, good for you, the music you tried. Fuck yeah. My number four goes to the costuming Okay. On this. Yeah. Those that, great pieces. That whole situation, it's iconic in its own weird little <laughs> way. It's an icon of its own world, its own forgotten world. Mostly, uh, I mean, Alicia Silverstone's one. Mm. The rest of them, they still do just, like, fill their roles. The fact that we've got that little Willie's Wieners t-shirt and the super fur collar that Christopher Walken is just walking around in. There's just these little decisions that are being made throughout in the costuming that makes it so wonderfully mid to late 90s time capsule. I feel it. It's just so good. My number three goes to Alicia Silverstone, the star and producer of this film, coming hot off of Clue. I do appreciate it, no matter what the Not result. Clue, clueless. Clueless, right, right, yeah. She doesn't we, have a clue, that's the problem. Oh, uh, that's true. We should do an episode on Clue, though, at some point. That was a good movie. Why do you keep saying that? Do you forget the time? That we, I mean, I know we forget the time we spent together, but why that one out of all of them? <laughs> Nobody puts communism in the corner. Damn it, I won't let you. Oh, right. Yeah, we did do that movie. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but no, I appreciate it when actors have a really huge hit and go on to do something very outside the box. We talked about this a little bit when we spoke of I Woke Up Early the Day I Died. Billy Zane had just been in Titanic, had all the stroke that one actor can have in Hollywood and used that clout to film an Ed Wood script. And Alicia Silverstone is the new it girl, is given all this money and decides, you know what I want to do with this money? I want to film this really weird black comedy that has some romance elements to it or whatever. I want to film this and I get to pick who my co-lead is. Yeah, I'm doing that. Whether or not it worked is subjective. But I appreciate that she took such a wild uh, direction with her career uh, with this, you know, made me forget about the weird stories I've heard about her chewing up food to spit in her kid's mouth or, you know, just whatever the fuck it is her mouth does. What? Seriously, her mouth, it just moves in such odd ways. It's, it's perplexing to watch. Like it, it's like her jaw moves diagonally. I, I can't place it, but it's just always mesmerizing and perplexing at the same time. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, this is a different situation than I Woke Up Early because I Woke Up Early was a very avant-garde script, whereas mm -hmm. this one was supposed to be just like the next big Hollywood That's true, blockbuster yeah. rom-com. Mm -hmm. So it was supposed to make the studios a lot of money. It just didn't. Yeah. I, so it wasn't supposed to be as weird as it was. Right, <laughs> it's just yeah. Cast and some of the decisions that they were making and the fact that this screenplay never quite finds a point or seems to try to market this sociopaths in love thing in a way that doesn't quite work for anybody but me. I do actually like I love that they don't have any chemistry. I love that they're like <laughs> these strange sociopaths that have no regard for the rules of society, that the entire thing's kind of gross because he seems like he's 30 years older than her. He's a replacement father figure and she's already accused him of like underage molestation i'm like these are all of the keys to true romance for me but only me like i can see why nobody else wants to see this relationship unfold the quirks that make movies like this delightful 
I think, to to uh, viewers like us, uh, more so you. I, I think you have uh, attachments and and feelings for this movie. I do not, but I will choose to respect those feelings all the same. I'm not saying that this movie is a great movie. This movie fails on a lot of levels, and yet it's I think kind of like watching like this really fascinating car wreck in slow motion for me that I am interested and invested in this movie all the way through because I'm like, what choices are you making? And it's not in a B-rated way. Like, all of these choices are competent. They just don't make a whole lot of sense. And like, <laughs> and yet, like, the performances are really watchable. So I'm like, this is, something is happening here. There's a tone in this movie's failure that is a very different brand of failure than I generally see or experience. And I've always been fascinated by that. I don't know. But You're my num- number... Three is the soundtrack, the music. The music, yep. It delights me every time. Like Whoever chose these songs for this movie chose to just have us be guided into the rom-com ethos by just replaying Dave Matthews over and over again. Bless you. From the depths of whatever divine space there might be in the existentialist (laughs) void of the universe. Bless you. It would be one thing if they used two Dave Matthews songs and you just think, okay, they're picking a theme here. But to play the same Dave Matthews song twice and at the same part of the song, we hear the exact same lyrics. (laughs) Although the person I was watching this with, because I like there was I had somebody in town visiting, and so I was like, "Good, another individual to just introduce oh, this yeah. really random they movie to." Know. And the David Matthews Band song came on again, and he was like, "Wait, is this the same song?" And I was like, "I don't know, because all of Dave Matthews' songs sound the same to me." He's like, "I know, that's my problem too." It's like we couldn't actually tell initially. I was like, "Wait, is this a song we heard before? Is this a different Dave Matthews song? Are there different Dave Matthews songs? Are they all the same Dave Matthews song in general in his oeuvre? I don't know. They do all sound the same to me. So it wouldn't have made a difference to me if they'd actually picked a different one. No, probably not. Who so knows? there, but no, it was delightful. Like. I, uh, yeah, I don't know what this movie would be without the music. It certainly wouldn't be a romantic comedy because that's the only thing that gives us that indication. <laughs> it actually reminds me of like some of those remix trailers that are out there where it's like The Shining recut as a romantic comedy oh, or like yeah. Mary Poppins recut as a horror movie. And I love to teach those in like film classes and stuff to just show how much music and the way we've been programmed to read certain music as a certain rhetorical device mm-hmm. that comes into play. And, so, like, we hear this music, right, and or you hear this happy Salisbury Hill song in the Shining trailer, and you're like, oh, yeah, suddenly this is a romantic comedy. And, like, it has that effect there. Like, I feel like I'm watching some sort of remix where it's like, excess baggage recut is a romantic comedy because of the music. And it just happens to be an actual production choice. Uh, my number two. Yes. What is your number two? My number two is Benicio Del Toro. For, I think, all the reasons we've mentioned throughout this movie, he is such an enigmatic performer. And I just, I, I love all the crazy things that he's doing in this film. They're so almost alien, the way that he says some things, you know, from Bodyguard to... Bodyguard. Like those clips I was playing where he's like, uh, you know, bang, bang, don't do it, man. She's in the trunk, man. Don't do it, you know what I'm saying? Found the owner in the trunk. How does it feel, stick? <laughs> I don't... These are 
no one else would think to say these things that way. And yet, it I mean, it works. Don't get me wrong. I I love everything he's doing in this. And this was, you know, fairly early in his career. I knew he was he had done usual suspects prior to this, and that's what got him this job. But he hadn't gone on to do a lot of the things that people would know him for. I think now he's most known for his role in those Sicario movies where he's, you know, deadly quiet most of the time and just very intimidating. But here he's kind of just this scrappy guy who's trying to, you know, he just wants to steal a car, you know, come on, give me a break. And, you know, life threw a wrench in that plan, so to speak. And he plays yeah. it very well. Benicio Del Toro's career doesn't make you think like romantic comedy leading man. And yet he's in this one and he's pretty much the same dude as he always is in all his other films. <laughs> so that's awesome. That's why Benicio is also my number two. Oh, very like, nice. He, okay. He's my favorite performance in this movie Yeah, by far. He's my favorite thing to watch in this mm -hmm. movie. So yeah, he's just a delight. He's a complete delight. He commits. He's in his own movie in this. Very it's true. A beautiful, weird space. <laughs> Who's your number one? My number one was your number five, uh, or number four, whatever, lower on your list. Christopher Walken. It's kind of hard to explain why. I guess because I mentioned earlier that this is Christopher Walken at a time when his performances were just whatever the, the script was calling for. He In this role, he's meant to be intimidating, but also, you know, affable or just like kind of laughing his way through things uh, the way, like, sit down on a mission, but, you know, he's having fun along the way, and it works really well here. I think that nowadays, in most of his films, like I said, he's a walking meme. He's doing an impression of himself, and people often forget the dude is a really good actor. He can act and is effective in that, and like you said, you know, his approach is, if you don't know what you're going to do, just don't do anything, and even with nothing, he still has such a great screen presence throughout all this movie and all of his little twerks and little ticks he, he has when he kind of just barely squints or when he just barely moves his head. It says so much, and very few actors can do that as effectively as Christopher Walken does. So it was just a really delight to watch him you know, use his craft in a way that's not meant to be over the top and crazy, like every role he takes is an SNL sketch nowadays or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. My number one You're... is Alicia Silverstone. Fair enough. Fair enough, you know. I do like Benicio's performance better, and yet this movie would not have happened without Alicia Silverstone. Mm -hmm. This was the movie that was handpicked and given to her through her own created production company to offset a chain of events that are going to lead to higher income brackets for female actors. Like, there's just a whole bunch of stuff. And she kind of just gets caught up in this as a Hollywood industry object in a way because she was very young when she started to get attention and then she had this hot shining moment as first the Aerosmith girl and then the Clueless girl and then her career took a dive very very quickly starting with this movie and then with Batman and Robin and then she just kind of faded away she was still in a lot of stuff mm -hmm. you know like bit rolls over time but she didn't ever have the career again that she had in those early foundational days. Mm. And I have a lot of empathy for that, the way that the studio and then also audiences treated and received her. There's a lot of really fascinatingly disturbing interview clips of 
hosts interviewing her when she's like still under the age of 18. I'm trying to remember who it was. There's like one in particular where she's sitting there and she's being interviewed by the host. She's like, yeah, so like asking her all these like super sexual questions. And it's like, oh, and how old are you? And she's like 17. And he's like, oh, man, I feel like Joey Buttafuoco all of a sudden or whatever. And it's like, no, this is this is a problem. You're an adult man. And you're like super sexualizing this chick. But like that was kind of her role, right? Is like the crazy, rebellious, sexy Aerosmith girl who's mm-hmm. like underage. And then the second that she starts to like not look pubescent anymore the world sort of turns on her or if she doesn't have this perfectly bright shining charismatic role the world kind of turns on her very quickly and so that is just a fascinating kind of moment in history to watch and I also just have always personally had this fascination with Alicia Silverstone I also am part of the problem that like (laughs) sexualized her it was age appropriate at the time because I'm younger than she is you're part of every problem London I mean this is just another one yeah I'm a part of every problem it's fine it's fine (laughs) I'm a problematic individual I own it but there's just something about Alicia Silverstone that I've always just kind of found very watchable in her younger years so I did like this movie and her presence within it. This is very much just Alicia Silverstone's movie mm-hmm. that other people are in. So, yeah. And, you know, me, I just have this weird prevailing fascination with excess baggage and I can't <laughs> shake why. And I'm not saying it's because it's good. It's just because it fascinates me right. on a completely ineffable level. But we we spoke on some of the reasons, but other reasons still remain elusive. Mm-hmm. This movie because, yeah. has many things, but uh, was there anything that it didn't have? Yeah, ultimately, this movie is just, it's a time capsule. It exists, and it's very confusing that it exists. And it's even more confusing that it had an impact on the Hollywood industry, even if it didn't have an impact on audiences. And yeah, so the bright, shining hopes of this movie, they all came crashing down. First Kiss Productions never made another film, because... All of these magical components, yeah, and there's just like, there's really just no accounting as we say for it out here, right, for market value. Isn't it romantic, music in the night, a dream that can be heard, isn't it romantic, moving shadows right, the oldest magic word I hear the breezes playing in the trees above
escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!